hey, hey, good morning, good morning. Sorry I'm late, but I am here. I simply overslept. <laughs> that's that's my bad. That's my bad. We had a good defected last night, and uh, um, I had some good sleep last night. Uh, so yeah, thank you uh, for being here. Sorry I'm an hour late, but we have a show to do nonetheless. I have some material prepared. And um, I have a little bit of extra time today because my toddler is doing a lunch thing at preschool. So I got to we're cool. We're cool. I'm pretty sure we can cover everything that I want to cover this morning. Um, although we are going to rush through a few few things at the very beginning before we get to Jack Smith's latest filing in the Trump docs case. Um, I really want to cover his response to Trump's motion to compel. Um, I have read. I've seen some uh, some posts from others who have read it saying that it's uh, Jack Smith throwing a temper tantrum about Trump wanting discovery. I don't know that it is or isn't. Uh, so we're going to go and read the filing itself and find out. That's our main that's our main topic this morning. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to show you this. Hold up, hold up. That's the wrong key. Where where are we go? Here we go. Here we go. So if you like the show and you like the work I put out, go to my link tree and you can find all the places to follow me. If you want a podcast version of the show, go to Substack. Substack is the best place to go for, I mean, really Substack's the best place to go for the podcast. It's the only place to go for the podcast. You go there, you set it up to, uh, like I'll show you on this one. Over here, RSS feed, you can go to the Substack app and listen on your phone. You don't need to add another app. You don't need to like set it to a podcast player or everything. You can listen to it through the app or the website. But you can also send it to your favorite um, podcast player. And once you connect it to, say, Apple Podcast or whatever it is, Podbean, whatever it is you, you use, you don't have to set it up again. You set it up one time, and then it'll automatically update for you. But Substack is the best way to support the show. Uh, they A subscription over there is uh is a great way to support me because the the subscription lets me know like how much money is coming in and substack takes a very small amount of whatever money you put towards supporting the show other support links are ko-fi.com where you can buy me a coffee benson honey farms if you want some honey bootleg products if you want some chili or some salsa and manly cans if you want to buy a gift for the manly man in your life valentine's day is coming up manly cans is a great option um, I know I would like to receive a manly can for Valentine's Day. Mrs. Human is in the other room. I would really like to receive a manly can for Valentine's Day. <laughs> I don't know if y'all heard her reply. And then there's merch and there's uh, there's Venmo, of course. So those are all the support links. And as I've been saying, I've been making clips of the show. So last week, I made one, two, three, four, five, six, seven clips from this show. And if you go over here to my Rumble, you will find them under the playlist clips or just on the main screen. And um, yeah, that'll, if you're interested in getting clips, you just want to consume. Some people just want to listen to like certain segments of the show. This is where you can go do it at. And some people want clips so they can share it with others. Here's where you get them. Okay. 
Let's get to the material after I have a sip of coffee. First thing, Seth Rich FOIA case. So we are still waiting in this case for the judge to respond to the FBI missing the deadline. Um, as you recall, the judge ordered both Huddleston and the FBI to produce. Thank you, Bear BL. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Yes, I am indeed burning midnight oil at both ends. Yes. Uh, music and fiction, thank you as well. Here's a Lincoln for keeping everyone focused and motivated. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, so where we are in this case, in the Seth Rich FOIA case, is where we, the, the FBI failed to file what the judge ordered them to file, which was a, um, a proposed calendar for disclosure. Disclosure of the material on the personal laptop, work laptop, DVD, tape drive, and the metadata. And they were supposed to have that filed, what was it, like January 11th or January 12th was the deadline. And last I checked, the judge still hasn't responded and said, hey, you guys missed this deadline and this is what we're going to do. In fact, let me make let me make sure real quick. Where is Huddleston at? Here, let me do it this way. Still hasn't responded. So here's their filing from back here. And what happened was right after that, Huddleston made a uh, filing for attorney's fees. Then the judge came out with that order saying, yeah, I wasn't actually responding to everything Huddleston was asking for. There's a whole other filing. There's a whole other piece of information um, that Huddleston is asking for. There's like two prongs of attack here, two vectors of attack. There's the disclosure of the stuff that is actually on the laptop, TBD, uh, DVD, tape drive, all that. But then there's this other vector of attack that Huddleston is going for, which is um, all the material that's like doing searches for pizza, searches for WikiLeaks, searches for Assange, search, searches for um, any emails where um, Seth Rich is having any personal conflict or work conflict with the DNC. Um, there's also that angle, too. Um, and the judge hasn't ruled on that. So we're waiting to hear from the judge in this case, but in between those things, there's a battle for attorney's fees. And right here, this came shortly after just on the 12th, <clears throat> Huddleston wants payment for, um, from the FBI. He wants him to pay his attorney's fees. And what he says is since Mr. Huddleston filed his supplemental motion, for attorney's fees on February 2nd, 2023, so almost a year ago. Well, a year ago as of today, but not of this filing. He has incurred $48,650 in fees, plus $70.91 in expenses. The total outstanding balance now is $164,302.56. Even if the court grants expedited production schedule requested by Mr. Hudson, so what the schedule is for the disclosure that he wants. A number of other motions remain undecided, such as motion for leave to file supplemental complaint, unopposed request for clarification, which that has now been responded to, um, and plaintiff's motion for clarification of memorandum of opinion from September 29, 2022. Given the financial hardships created by the FBI's delays, 
Mr. Huddleston moves this court to award him the attorney fees and costs in the amount of $164,000. So their argument is that because the FBI has lied to the court, misrepresented facts to the court, has made this such a battle, delayed, 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 um, all that is cost so much money to Ty Clevenger, the lawyer, is the one owing, owed the money. Um, Mr. Huddleston has had to use Ty Clevenger as his attorney to get access to what he's gotten so far, and there's still so much left. And that this stuff, ne it just never should have happened this way. The FBI should have provided all this stuff at the very beginning. And so it has cost Mr. Huddleston $164,000 to get what he has gotten so far, and it's not near as much as what he's seeking. So he's asking for, he's saying, look, this is wrong, and the FBI needs to pay me. He needs to compensate me. So this little skirmish is playing out, and I, sh I don't mean, mean to minimize it, because it is important. Um, we had a recent filing in here. These are the most recent ones are concerning, these two right here, are concerning this battle back and forth for awarding damages or cost. I should say, not damages, cost. Let's see, this one's first, right? Yeah, this one's first. So this is the FBI's response to him and their excuse for not, for not paying him and why they think they shouldn't have to pay him. Defendant's position regarding interim fees has not changed since the parties previously briefed the issue and defendants incorporate and rely on their previously filed response and sir reply, sir reply regarding plaintiff's motion for interim payment of costs and attorney's fees. As previously argued, interim fees are disfavored in all but the most exceptional circumstances. I think we can all agree that this is an exceptional case with exceptional circumstances, right? Because litigating fees is burdensome and inefficient and it delays resolution on the merits. Isn't that the pot calling the kettle black? FBI saying, look, we don't need to battle about this right now. This is time consuming to talk about fees. Aye, aye, aye. Hey, let me get Foxhole pulled up over here. Just a moment. I thought I had it pulled up. Good morning to Foxhole fam. Quintessen, DB63Me. Good morning, guys. Okay. As before, plaintiff has failed to establish exceptional circumstances that warrant consideration of interim fees and his motion should be denied. There has not been material change in this matter that compels the court to award plaintiff interim fees and costs. Plaintiff argues that based on the November 28th memorandum opinion and order, he has substantially prevailed and therefore is now entitled to an interim award of fees and costs. However, that order cannot be read in isolation. As discussed in prior responses to requests for interim fees, the court's September 29th, 2022 memorandum and opinion and order resolved the majority of issues in this case in the defendant's favor, finding that the searches were adequate and that the withholdings and redactions were overwhelmingly appropriate in accordance with the FOIA exemptions. The reconsideration order did not change the fact that defendants have prevailed on the vast majority of issues presented in the case. That is true. The FBI has succeeded in the majority of the issues, but not all. And it's taken a long time and a lot of filings to arrive to a point where an order was made that decided an issue. So it's been costly, very costly. 
Indeed, the reconsideration order held that defendants properly withheld newly found documents pursuant to FOIA exemptions. That's true. The judge did find that some of the stuff that the FBI has withheld under FOIA exemptions ought to be and is rightly held under those exemptions. Moreover, although the reconsideration order object rejected other arguments defendants made, it did not require the defendants to produce Seth Rich's work laptop, the DVD tape drive, or collectively referred to as the work laptop, or the CD containing images of Seth Rich's personal laptop. Rather, the reconsideration order required the government to, quote, produce a Vaughn index addressing the information it possesses on the work and personal laptop. The requirement to produce a Vaughn index recognizes that defendants may still withhold additional documents pursuant to FOIA exemptions. That's true. A Vaughn index is not itself disclosure. A Vaughn index is an accounting of what it is they have and why they want to keep it exempt. As the defendants previously informed the court, they plan to assert Exemption 7A with respect to these records and will place this exemption before the court in motion for a summary judgment. In sum, the only change since plaintiff's last request for interim fees is the reconsideration order, but that order does not alter the fact that the defendants have prevailed on most issues in this case. At this time, plaintiff cannot satisfy the first part of the analysis or eligibility guiding a request for interim fees because he has not substantially prevailed and thus cannot establish that he is eligible for fees. In addition, as addressed in prior briefing, plaintiff cannot establish the second part of the inquiry because the four factors set forth in Allen v. FBI from 1989 do not support that plaintiff is entitled to an interim award of fees. All four factors suggest that plaintiff is not entitled to these fees and the court should find that. All right, so that's their argument. Like, no, we're not going to give you money. We've won on most things. And now is not the time for you to argue for an award of fees. Okay, so let's see what, let's see what Huddleston has to say. This is from January 29th. This is the most recent filing. And, you, you know, we could get, we could get a, a judge's order in this case any day now where he says the F tells the FBI to shove it and says, produce that schedule for disclosure right now. Produce that Vaughn index right now. Or he could say, uh, I buy into the FBI's argument. I'm going to give them another six months or another year. That's like the, in this case, that is what we are waiting for is what is the judge going to do about the FBI failing to meet this deadline on January 11th and instead wanting reconsideration, they're thinking about appeal, they're, they're fighting what the judge has ordered. We're, we're, that's the number one thing we're waiting on, is for the judge to respond to what happened on January 11th, or what didn't happen. And then we're also waiting for the judge to respond to this clarification thing that, ha that, ha <clears throat> that he said on uh, January 29th, where he said that his November order was not meant to answer Huddleston's motions regarding the, the searches for emails concerning Seth Rich's work, any personal issues at work, um, any mentions of emails, WikiLeaks, or WikiLeaks Assange, and things like that in his emails, all of that. Those are two things that are hanging out there. Uh, that we're waiting for a decision on. And this, in the interim, there's this battle over fees. 
All right, so here comes Huddleston. He says, in defendant's response to plaintiff's supplemental motion for interim payment of cost and attorney fees, <clears throat> pardon me, the defendants quibble about whether Mr. Huddleston substantially prevailed, such as to justify an award of attorney fees. The court will recall that thanks to this litigation, the FBI was forced to acknowledge the existence of thousands of responsive documents about Seth Rich. Mr. Huddleston, v. Bureau of Federal Investigation, and it cites the number, clarified on denial of reconsideration here, the mere acknowledgement of those records was a matter of public interest because the FBI went from denying the existence of any records to acknowledging the existence of thousands of records. Then it had to acknowledge possession of a tape drive, a DVD, Seth Rich's work laptop, and the contents of his personal laptop. Notice how the FBI made it seem like nothing's happened in this case and we've won everything. And then Huddleston comes in and is like, actually, you guys used to claim two years ago, you guys said you didn't have any records. But now we've gotten you to admit you have hundreds of thousands of records. In fact, the FBI has acknowledged the growing public interest in those records by making some of them publicly available on its website at the vault. Ooh. Here we go. Even Newsweek is now paying attention to this case. See Alice Higgum's Seth Rich laptop to be turned over by FBI judge rules from November 29th, 2023. But for this litigation, the FBI would still be hiding records about Seth Rich. This court previously has acknowledged Clevenger v. DOJ from 2020, a FOIA case filed by plaintiff's counsel in Brooklyn, New York, and it is re particularly relevant here. Near the end of Clevenger, plaintiff's counsel obtained proof that the FBI possessed records about Seth Rich, notwithstanding sworn testimony to the contrary. On January 27, 2020, plaintiff's counsel provided the New York, uh, provided the New York court with a copy of his January 27, 2020 letter to federal officials regarding possible perjury in the FBI's sworn declaration. And it cites those exhibits here and here, and then a letter from Ty Clevenger to John Durham is Exhibit 3. Two days later, the FBI submitted a testy response. Uh, here's this letter here, Exhibit 4. On February 3rd, 2020, Plaintiff's Counsel outlined the FBI's chicanery to the court and requested an evidentiary hearing. That motion highlighted some of the deceptions that the FBI employed in order to conceal records about Seth Rich. On March 29th, 2020, I just realized I haven't zoomed in for you guys. I'm sorry. There we go. That's better. Plaintiff's counsel informed the New York court that a federal prosecutor assigned to the Seth Rich murder had publicly acknowledged that the FBI investigated Mr. Rich's laptop as well as the purported hacking of his email account. Clearly, the FBI had investigated matters pertaining to Mr. Rich, and it almost certainly would have re records reflecting that. Notwithstanding the evidence, the New York court granted summary judgment in favor of the FBI on April 3rd, 2020. Plaintiff's counsel filed a motion for reconsideration on May 1st, 2020, and cited more detailed evidence about the FBI's investigation related to Mr. Rich. On May, now, that's Exhibit 7. 
The FBI could not and did not deny the evidence, but it opposed the motion for reconsideration and refused to conduct additional searches. On August 21, 2020, the New York court refused to reconsider its order. In other words, the FBI won, and the FBI, quote, got away with it. In light of that, the FBI cannot argue with a straight face that it would have voluntarily changed course without getting sued again, whether here or somewhere else. No, the FBI would not have revealed anything but for this lawsuit. At the very least, the FBI changed its position and began producing records in response to this lawsuit, and that, that alone is sufficient to make Mr. Huddleston a prevailing party. Okay, so he's saying, look, <clears throat> here, are the extorting, here are the extraordinary circumstances. He's bringing in this other case, which the FBI won, and he's lining out, he, or he's outlining how the FBI used to claim they had no records whatsoever. Now, because of this case right here in front of this judge, they've been forced to admit they have hundreds of thousands of records, I think it is, but definitely tens of thousands of records, um, hundreds of thousands of pages of records. If I recall, some 400,000 pages of records. If you were to take everything on the laptops and put them into document form. And the FBI wants 60 years to produce it all. And so Huddleston is arguing, look, that, that, those facts make us the prevailing party here. It also sat, I think he's probably about to say, it also satisfies the extraordinary circumstances requirement for an interim payment of fees. In a defendant's response, the defendants do not contest the reasonableness of the amount of fees requested by Mr. Huddleston. That's true. The FBI did not, address, did not say that the, the monetary amount, the money, was too much. They didn't, they didn't contest that. They didn't challenge it at all. Nor did the defendants contest the reasonableness of the amounts previously requested by Mr. Huddleston. In defendant's response to plaintiff's motion for interim payment of costs and attorney's fees, the defendants requested permission to brief the reasonable to brief the reasonableness of fees separately, but the defendants have not made such a request here. Mr. Huddleston would object to such a request should the FBI raise it in a sir reply, and he incorporates by reference plaintiff's reply in support of motion for interim payment of costs and attorney's fees. That reply reads in relevant part as follows: quote, Toward the end of their response, the defendants moved the court to grant them permission to separate to separately and subsequently brief the reasonableness of the undersigned's invoice. In other words, they want to drag things out by at least a couple more months. The defendants did not confer with plaintiff's counsel as required by Local Rule 7H before making their request to the court, and they do not cite any authority in support of their request for piecemeal briefing, nor is the plaintiff aware of any. The defendants thus waive their opportunity to brief the reasonableness of the, the fee invoice, and the court can determine for itself whether the invoice is reasonable. The FBI has had almost two years to brief the reasonableness of the hourly rate charged by the plaintiff's counsel, and it should not be allowed to delay the matter further. Furthermore, the FBI waived any objection to the amount of the fee request by failing to brief that issue. Conclusion Mr. Huddleston is a prevailing party, and the full fee request should be awarded to him insofar as the defendants have not objected. So that is the state of things in the Seth Rich FOIA case, Huddleston v. Federal Bureau of Investigation. And as you can see, I have alerts turned on for this because I can't wait for 
something, the judge to respond to what the FBI failed to do. The FBI failed to comply with the judge's order, and I can't wait to hear what the judge says. Not getting my hopes up super high about it, tempering them a bit, but overall I'm optimistic. Okay, I definitely need to bookmark this right here because I have not gone through the Seth Rich stuff in the FBI vault. I don't know if you guys have, um, but I have not. And I kind of feel silly that I haven't. Okay. Let's go back over here. So Trump DC case, the calendar date has been officially vacated and there is no, the trial is not scheduled at all. So the, the whole, we are, and the schedule is in abeyance was already held in abeyance, but now it's run into its previous dates as you guys know, and it's off the calendar completely. And BB and I, we didn't talk about this last night on defected, but so I'll talk about it here. There is a psychological victory here in this where the, this, this date, they wanted this. Um, Jack Smith wanted March 4th, the day before Super Tuesday. Um, the left, Trump's enemies wanted this date to have us, even though, even though Trump is going to be the nominee anyway. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Everybody knows that he's inevitable. But they wanted this, this date to hold, and they wanted Trump to be on trial as early as possible in the primary season and for trials to occupy his time from now until the election. And honestly, I don't think that would be as good for them as they think it would be <laughs> because I very much believe and maintain that Trump's cases are his campaign and his trials would be part of his campaign. It's all campaigning. It's all good for him. His numbers keep going up and up and up. Uh, in fact, there is a, uh, I'm going to show you something. This is hostile media from the other day. Did I put it up? I think I shared it. Yes, I did. Oh, no, that's that's Mark Elias. That wasn't it. It was a different one. Hold on. Thought I shared it. Maybe I didn't. I'll show you this really short clip from the hostile legacy media. Uh, there it is. There it is. Dan Scavino put it out. Okay. Uh, let me get you guys set up on here so you can hear it. Just a moment. Okay. Bottom line, when you ask folks, hey, if it's the general election and it's Trump versus Biden, in our poll, Donald Trump 
now leads Joe Biden by five points. Compare that to the last time we polled back in November. Trump was ahead then, but it was only by two points. And it's even more significant when you look at it this way. Over time, we have been testing for five years now, going back to 2019, a Biden-Trump matchup. Remember, 2019, 2020, Joe Biden led. He led big in every single one of our polls. For the first time in November, Donald Trump pulled ahead in our poll, and now at five points, this is the biggest lead NBC has ever had in 16 polls for Donald Trump. That right there. Okay, just forget that it's... I mean, I don't want you to forget that it's the hostile media. Um, I know it's also... Golly, I hate this kind of camera work. What is going on with media where this is a good way to use a camera? Leaning in and out, zooming in and out, panning around like you're freaking drunk. I hate it so much. I hate it so, 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 so much, guys. God, I hate it. Glenn Beck does it. All of these media outfits do it with the cameraman being, it's drunken cameraman technique, and it is the most awful thing to ever happen. Anyway, what he just said. 16 polls over the course of five years by a hostile legacy media outfit. And now look at that trend. Look at that trend. Now they can't even deny it. They can't fake their polling enough to keep Biden ahead of Trump. And now there's either two things going on here. Either one, they've decided it's time for them to switch this early in the campaign season. They decided it's time for them to quit messing with their polls and start showing a truer, a truer picture of the electorate. And they decided that that's what they got to do. They got to be honest, a little bit more honest. You know, I'm not going to say they're completely honest, but they've decided they got to be a little bit more honest about what the real numbers are with Trump v. Biden. And so they're showing this. And that Trump's lead is so great that it, they really just can't hide it anymore. So that's one thing that could be going on here. That's the most likely thing, really. Two, they're throwing Biden under the bus. And it could be that both are true at the same time, right? It could be they decide that we're going to show this because we are on board with getting Biden off the ticket because he can't win. It could be one or both of those things. Uh, but I do find it interesting, and I love that Dan Scavino highlighted this. Um, so back to this decision. This is a psychological victory for us to have this trial off, off the calendar. And I don't think you should underestimate just how good of a victory it is for us because it's, it's one thing for us to do a victory lap over it, but I think the, the left, the Dems, this is a headline they... I think this headline hurts. I actually think this headline hurts them. And I'm talking about the intelligentsia, the, the apparatchiks, the influencers, the elites, uh, the swamp creatures. I think, I think that this calendar date being off the, being gone, this trial date being off the calendar hurts them psychologically more than it hurt the average MAGA Republican when they learned that Trump was indicted in the first place. If that makes sense. Okay. Trump Georgia case. More bad news. More bad news for them. 
good news for us. So you remember in Trump's motion to compel, which we're about to talk about in the next segment, our prime segment, in Trump's motion to compel, even they mentioned Trump team wanted discovery on communications between Nathan Wade and Fannie Willis and the White House because of coordination between the White House and Fulton County prosecutors in setting up the RICO case there. And we've had this scandal going on with Fannie Willis and uh, Nathan Wade because Nathan w- they're in this they have their divorce cases and stuff has come out in their divorce cases and Mike Roman's team got a hold of it. He Mike Roman's one of the defendants in the Georgia Rico case. And um they got some material in there showing that there's some sort of affair or at least allegations of an affair. Well, guess what? Nathan Willis or Nathan Wade and Fannie Willis admit that they're having an affair. They didn't fight it. They admitted that they Nathan Wade uh, settled his divorce case. He bought off his ex-wife to keep his case sealed and keep her quiet. And now they've made a filing in defense um, in response to Mike Roman's filing, which Trump signed on to, admitting that they have a personal relationship and that it started in 2022 before the Trump indictment. The travel paid by Wade, he says that travel was his from his personal funds, not the $700,000 he was paid by Fulton County. Nobody believes that. Wade's claim is that Willis never received, quote, funds or personal financial gain from his position. That's, we all know that's completely misleading. And it dances around the truth that Willis ex- received extravagant gifts from her special prosecutor gifts she never reported. So let's say even if even if it's true that Willis never received direct funds or personal gain from Wade. Let's say they were gifts. Let's just say that no, he he bought all that stuff before I hired him. Okay, let's just pretend that that's the case. She still never reported them, which is required by law. So even if she succeeds in claiming that these gifts are not attached to the $700,000 he's been paid by her office, she's still in violation of the law because she never reported the gifts. And because she never reported the gifts, that shows, and in a way, it, it, this shows that she knew she shouldn't have been receiving them, right? She didn't report the gifts because she knew it would look improper for her to report gifts received from one of her own prosecutors who she was paying $700,000. Willis demands no evidentiary hearing, obviously concerned about herself and Wade and members of their staff from testifying. She doesn't, she doesn't want to have an evidentiary hearing on this matter where everybody has to show what they have. Oh, Team Smooth. Yes, compare with Clarence Thomas. Yeah. Think about the hissy fit they're throwing about Clarence Thomas and and things he's received from a friend, which he's, re- which he's reported when required, and when it wasn't required to report, he didn't report it. Compare that to the scandal here. Good point. Willis, financial responsibility to personal travel is divided roughly evenly between the two. 
which is hilarious. They're lying. It's not divided roughly between the two. When you look at the receipts, you can see that that's the case. Financial responsibility for personal travel is divided roughly evenly between the two, with neither being primarily responsible for expenses. That's what they say in the filing. But then look at the receipts. On Fannie Willis's receipts, she doesn't put the amount. It just shows she had these flights. She didn't put the amount. She just put that she had these flights. Well, the reason I think she didn't put that amount is because Wade paid for them. Here's Wade's receipts, which actually have a dollar amount. Here's uh, Freedom of the Sea and the Ubers to and from, Hyatt Regency Hotel in Aruba, Norwegian Cruise Line here, $3,100 for this cruise. And then you go over to these receipts. There's more Royal Caribbean Cruise, $1,300. Look, those two tickets. And look, Fannie Willis right here, a ticket. She, he's paying for her tickets. She has the flights in her app that she's going on the flight, but he's the one paying for it. And then Vacation Express, $3,800. Audi Atlanta, $6,000. I guess he drives an Audi. Good for him. Audis are nice cars. So... He's over here paying all these expenses for all these cruises, and obviously it's right there. He's taking her with him. Oh, cruises are gross. The ocean is gross. Why do people go on these gross cruises? Anyway, I think what I think what we might see happen in this Rico case, it seems yeah, you're right, geezer man. Technofog, Technofog has a good substack on this matter. So if you want to look more into um if you want to look more into what's going on there, go to Technofog's Fog Substack. Um I think what we might see happen in this Rico case is Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade are taken off the case. And new prosecutors are put in charge, and then they end up dropping the case. I think that's highly likely, highly likely. And then Sidney Powell and the others who took a plea bargain, then a, then they might they they might get nullified. It might all the whole thing might get thrown out, and them not owe any fines or anything. We'll see. But I think Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade are done. I really do. I think they're going to end up they're going to end up being taken off this case. I could be wrong, but that's that's what I think. Okay. Some new prosecutor is going to step in and be like, this is a mess. This whole thing's a mess. I'm not doing this. Okay. And then we also have, you know, it's not just this affair and these expenses. There, there's um, the coordination with the White House and the fact that Willis's office received federal funds. And so Jim Jordan and Comey uh, or Comer are have sent letters requesting documents from Fulton County and from the White House. And Trump's team wants documentation from the White House because there's coordination with the Fulton County prosecution leading up to the RICO indictment. And that gives them oversight. 
So if Fannie Willis took federal government money that was supposed to go that went to her office and then she used it to pay Nathan Wade, and then Nathan Wade used it to buy expensive gifts for her. It just increases the scandalous nature of this entire arrangement and the embarrassment of it to them and the impropriety. So, um, and because she didn't report any of it, she broke the law. So she could be like facing, she might end up before the Georgia bar in a hearing being sanctioned. Um, if not, if not worse. Okay. Let's go to the Florida docs case. So we, uh, covered that huge filing, which I loved doing his motion to compel. And since then, there's been some other, there's been some other filings going on, but the, the, the one that I really want to focus on today that we're going to read in full is Jack Smith's response to Trump's motion to compel discovery. And I have it right here and it's a large filing. So grab your coffee, buckle up. And, uh, we're going to go through this filing. Let's see what Jack Smith says about why he shouldn't have to turn over all this stuff. And there has been a meeting here, as we talked about last week. Uh, Judge Cannon met um, ex parte with Jack Smith about the SIPA Section 4 classified material. And she hasn't issued a ruling on it yet. So we're waiting for her to rule on that. And we're also waiting for her to rule on the this motion to c- compel discovery. So there's two different... You got two different uh, stacks of discovery, right? That Trump or t- discovery battles. There's this motion to compel discovery, which is huge, but then there's also the SIPA Section Four discovery that Trump is trying to get, and that's a bit separate from this. It's all discovery, but it's two different battles uh, that are playing out at the same time. Let me refill my coffee cup real quick. By the way, I'm shopping some soundproof curtains. So, <laughs> sorry about that. Sorry I haven't gotten them yet. I've I've been browsing them. Um I will I will get some though. Okay. Introduction. The defendants have received substantial, timely, and thorough discovery in this case, according to Jack Smith. By early September 2023, the government had provided the defendants with over 1.28 million pages of unclassified discovery and all of the CCTV footage obtained in the investigation. Since then, the government has supplemented its production as necessary. This production not only complies with the government's constitutional and rule-based discovery obligations, it goes far beyond. The government recognizes its discovery obligations, has complied with them, and will continue to do so. The defendants have nevertheless filed a lengthy motion to compel in which they seek abstract rulings on the scope of the prosecution team and various directives that the government provided them with a range of additional materials, or provides them with a range of different additional materials. The motion should be denied as legally and factually flawed Discovery requests must be based on specific demands tied to the case for items materials for items material to preparing the defense. Instead of meeting those standards, 
The defendant's motion seeks to non-discoverable materials based on speculative, unsupported, and false theories of political bias and animus. Many of the requests are so generalized that it is difficult to decipher what they seek. Others reflect pure conjecture detached from the facts surrounding this prosecution. For still others, the government has already furnished the defendants with what they seek to the extent that the law requires. The government will explain below why the defendant's showings fall short of applicable legal requirements. But before turning to those arguments, it is necessary to set the record straight on the underlying facts that led to this prosecution, because the defendant's motion paints an inaccurate and distorted picture of events. The government will clear the air on those issues, not because the court needs to resolve factual disputes before denying the motion, it need not resolve the facts, but because the defendant's misstatements, if unanswered, leave a highly misleading impression on a number of matters. After that discussion, the governments will turn to the underlying legal principles and the application of defendant's request, all of which should be denied. A word at the outset about those requests. The defendants have scattered their requests throughout the motion. For the court's convenience, the government includes an appendix to, the, to this response, a, um, a chart enumerating what the defendants appear to seek. <laughs> the defendants also have filed a supplement a classified supplement in which they asked the court to compel production of various categories of classified information. This opposition responds to the defendant's classified supplement with unclassified arguments to the extent possible. Additional responses are in the government's classified supplement. Okay, I want to see this chart that they have. Uh, okay, I want to see. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think that was it. I want to see this exhibit they have where they're like, here's a chart of everything Trump wants. Here we go. This is handy. Okay. Thanks, Jack Smith. This helps us. It's nice to see it in a chart like that. Okay. Okay, we'll go back up. Thank you, UFO hunters. Filter dog, good morning. Okay, where was I? I gotta get, I was way up here. Okay, let me zoom back in. Defendants rely on a pervasively false narrative of the investigation's origins. Their apparent claim, their apparent aim is to cast a cloud of suspicion over responsible actions by government officials diligently doing their jobs. The defendant's insinuations have scant factual or legal relevance to their discovery request, but they should not stand uncorrected. Put simply, the government here confronted an extraordinary situation, a former president engaging in calculated and persistent obstruction of the collection of presidential records, which, as a matter of law, belong to the United States for the benefit of history and posterity, and, as a matter of fact, here included a trove of highly classified documents containing some of the nation's most sensitive information. The law required that those documents be collected, and the record establishes that the relevant government officials performed their task with professionalism and patience in the face of unprecedented defiance. To develop its counter-narrative, the defendant cherry-picked exhibits and selectively quoted, quote, 
from documents that the government itself produced in discovery, putting a nefarious gloss on innocuous events. But selective quotations from documents coupled with speculative leaps do not make for genuine factual disputes, much less contrary to the defendant's claim, the necessity for an evidentiary hearing. The storyline that the defendants seek to develop is contradicted by the full text of the documents they cite and by documents they ignore. The account that follows, which relies entirely on documents produced in discovery, corrects the misimpressions that the defendants create. All right, here's a footnote. Footnote, to minimize confusion, the government will refer to the exhibits to the defendant's motion by number and to the additional government exhibits by letters. Of the 22 documents that defendants cite in support of their narrative with respect to NARA, 14 were produced in discovery. Two are publicly filed documents from the election fraud prosecution, United States v. Trump, in D.C., and six are documents that appear to have obtained been obtained via Freedom of Information Act. One of the heavily redacted FOIA exhibits, which is Exhibit 17, was produced by the government in unredacted form and appears as Exhibit 18 to the defendant's motion. Okay. Removal of presidential records. The genesis of this case dates not to May 2021, where the defendant's account begins, but to the tail end of the Trump administration itself, at the conclusion of which the archivist of the United States was to assume custody of all presidential records from the administration. Redacted. We have three lines redacted, three and a half. Based on discussions during the administration with Trump's White House staff secretary, Worm, W-H-O-R-M, Official 1, believed there to be, or there to have been, approximately 24 boxes of documents in the White House residence. See Exhibit 1. I think this might be easier. This is, these are letters. Let me open up these exhibits in a different tab and see if we can jump over and reference them while we read this. Well, these are, these are letters in the attachments. Hmm. Is that what he did? Oh, okay. It's not showing everything that is Hmm. It's not showing everything on the on court listener. Got to do it in Pacer. Hold up. I'm downloading this. These are still by letter. He said some were numbered and some were letters. All right, we'll skip it for now. It might be easier for me to do it later in a thread. I was going to see if we could jump to each exhibit as we read through this, but that doesn't seem to be something that we can do easily. Might be. I think it's going to be more frustrating to try and do it live during the show than it would be, than I would like it to be.
Okay, these records belong to the people of the United States. Nara engages in retrieval efforts. Nara therefore communicated about the missing records with Trump's Presidential Records Act representatives. After circulating a draft letter within Nara about records required to be transferred to Nara, Nara wrote to Trump's PRA representatives on May 6, 2021, Exhibit 3. The letter expressed concern about significant records that Nara cannot account for and requested the PRA representatives' immediate assistance. I personally think these have to do with the Crossfire Hurricane binder that is quote-unquote missing. I think that's where this missing uh, narrative comes from, is this right here. I really do. And I'm not the only one who thinks that. That's been a, a popular theory for a while, and I never quite bought into it at first. Um, but now it makes more sense. Mo the, deep, the more we learn about this case, especially in the past month or so, and the news reporting, it, it's making more and more sense that this is the Crossfire Hurricane Binder. These missing records included several prominent documents, such as a, the letter from former President Obama, the letter that former President Obama had left for President Trump in the Resolute Desk, the letters Trump received from North Korean President Kim Jong-un, and a poster board showing the path of Hurricane Dorian that Trump had used during a televised briefing. What the F? Okay. The letter also noted that Nara understood there to be roughly two dozen boxes that had been stored in the White House residence and never transferred to Nara. Got, got. <laughs> I'm laughing because it's just. This is so Trump. It seems so obvious that that Trump took all of these things to Nar to Mar-a-Lago because he knew that Nara would come asking for them. And that's what he wanted. He wanted them to come asking for him. It's the it's the matador's cloak every time. It's the every time. Every time these people are it's so easy. All of this stuff is well documented. There's no urgency. There's no urgency for Nara to get these things. Delays and continue Nara efforts. A month elapsed without progress on the mixing bo missing boxes. It does mention the other boxes, so it's not just those items, but it's just hilarious to me that those are the items that get mentioned. On June 9th, 2021, that he was out of patience, the leading archivist said, he's out of patience with Trump. Given that he needs to have this poster of Hurricane Dorian, damn it. Given the PRA representative's delay and their vague assurances, <laughs> I'm just picturing how Trump added on, took that Sharpie and drew on the Dorian map <laughs> and how the, the media went, they just, they lost their shit. 
that Trump would dare draw on a map of a hurricane's path with a Sharpie. <laughs> Given the PRA representative's delay and their vague assurances of, quote, expecting to be able to get resolution relatively soon, that was an understandable reaction to foot dragging that prevented NARA from fulfilling its statutory duties. As NARA attempted to carry out its responsibilities, it was unaware that scores of boxes remained unsecured at Trump's Mar-a-Lago club and that those boxes contained hundreds of classified documents. A succession of Trump PRA representatives corresponded with NARA without ever resolving any of NARA's concerns about the boxes of presidential records that had been identified as missing in January 2021. By the end of June 2021, NARA had still received no update on the boxes, despite repeated inquiries, and it informed the PRA representatives that the archivist had directed NARA personnel to seek assistance from the Department of Justice, quote, which is the necessary recourse when we are unable to obtain the return of improperly removed government records that belong in our custody. So we've covered... Um, in that uh, that America First legal document, and um, last week on Friday that we read through, and uh, at other times in this case, we've covered how it was not. And Trump's Trump's team is making the case, and so did the America First legal people, that Nara going to DOJ made no sense. Nara should have gone to the DNI. That's where they're. That's where that's the the government entity they should have gone to concerning a possible spillage of classified records, not DOJ. And that because D they went to DOJ first, it set this entire thing down the wrong path. Even though I personally believe that it was exactly the path Trump and team wanted to be on, they're not going to say that. NARA is saying, no, we went to DOJ because it was necessary and it is the proper uh, path for us to go down when someone won't return and properly remove government records. And I think you can, I think that's understandable. I'm not saying it's right, but I think it's understandable that that is, they, I think this argument that they would make right there is understandable and that Trump and team knew it and they wanted them to go down that route anyway. That message precipitated the involvement of Trump's former White House chief of staff, Meadows who engaged the archivist directly at the end of July. Ooh, guys. End of July 2021 is where Tr when Trump and team had their cabinet meeting. Remember that? Where they all went to Bedminster and uh, Trump and Meadows and um, a whole assortment of people that were in Trump admin had a cabinet meeting, as they refer to, and the media went crazy uh, because Mark Meadows said that. That was one of the uh, one of the first like devolutiony hints that we picked up on. Additional weeks passed with no results, and by the end of August 2021, Nara still had had received nothing from Trump or his PRA representatives. Independently, the House of Representatives had requested presidential records from Nara, further heightening the urgency of Nara obtaining access to the missing boxes. On August 30th, the archivist notified Trump's former chief of staff, that'd be Meadows, 
that he would assume the boxes had been destroyed and would be obligated to report that fact to Congress, DOJ, and the White House. The former chief of staff promptly requested a phone call with the archivist. Next section. Formal and limited involvement of White House counsel's office. And redacted, 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 redacted. Sue, S-U, that'd be Jonathan Sue, who is one of the White House uh, counsels, was subsequently included in correspondence with PRA representatives and NARA, but not for any nefarious reason, as the defendants appear to contend. Rather, before his call with Trump's former chief of staff, Worm Official 1 wanted to review notes he took during the Trump administration on the subject of missing presidential records. These notes have become PRA records and, in NARA's view, required notification to Trump or one of his representatives before Worm Official 1 could see them. Any doubt about the reason for Sue's involvement is resolved by an email that appears in Exhibit 7 but is not mentioned in the text of the defendant's motion. So Trump and team want discovery on um, communications between Jonathan Sue, pretty sure it's Jonathan, and uh, NARA. And Jack Smith's team says, this is already understandable from this one email. In early September 2021, a Trump PRA representative who had served as Deputy White House Counsel during the Trump administration, proposed to NARA official the idea of a conference call including Worm Official 1, Trump's former White House Chief of Staff Meadows, and others regarding the missing boxes. The call eventually took place on October 19, 2021. As the NARA official wrote at the time, he and, and the Trump PRA representative, quote, both understood that we would have to coordinate with White House counsel concerning any involvement by Worm Official 1. Accordingly, the NARA official then spoke with Jonathan Sue, deputy counsel to the president, to let him know about Trump's PRA representative's proposal. Sue accordingly reached out to the Trump PRA representative directly to set up the call. At no point in the correspondence did Trump's PRA representative suggest that Sue's participation in these discussions was in any way improper. Okay. Well, Trump's team didn't say it was improper. You're inferring it. Right there. He admits, it was not nefarious as defendants appear to contend. Okay. The defendants also misleadingly suggest that there was something improper about Sue's involvement in the discussion of whether Worm Official 1 could review his own notes before the call. In fact, the Trump PRA representative not only knew of the request, but expressly told Sue and the NARA official that he approved it. Quote, in connection with our call yesterday, it's fine for Worm Official 1 to get his own documents from NARA so that he can check his notes for a call with me and the former Chief of Staff Meadows in reference to the boxes that were in the residence. Sue then asked NARA if they could discuss process in the event that the Trump PRA representative asked to see the notes himself. Guys, you know what? If it's not improper and they're not alleging it's imp like if Jack Smith's team is saying it's not improper and there's nothing weird going on here, then just give the discovery. Like. Just grant the discovery on the discussions and prove that it, no, there's nothing improper going on.
Sue then asked Nara if they could discuss process in the event that Trump PRA representative asked to see those notes himself. The Nara official responded that normally we would have to provide the records to him per the notification review process before we could provide anything to you. Sue responded, okay, thanks. Far from alerting Sue that the request was atypical, the Nara official's use of normally simply informed Sue of the typical Nara practice and Sue's acceptance of this process point without objection, okay, thanks, in no way supports the defendant's overarching claim that the White House was somehow exercising undue influence. If it's all above board and it's all normal process, then just provide the correspondence, the emails. Just provide the emails and discovery and prove that. Like, I think Judge Cannon is going is to say that. The defendants also point to an October 5th, 2021 internal NARA email chain that it characterizes as describing a strategy to time NARA's public communications with Congress in order to prejudice President Trump. But that description wholly mischaracterizes the email chain and the defendant's unfounded interpretation is undercut by the NARA official's statement that he intended to, quote, let the Trump reps know that this is what we plan to do. Moreover, an earlier email in the same chain, dated September 15th, 2021, also an internal, um, internal to NARA, but again unmentioned in the defendant's motion, completely guts their claims of NARA's biased eagerness to involve DOJ. Quote, We cannot go to DOJ while we are engaged in ongoing discussions with the White House and the Trump reps, which could help to clarify, if not actually resolve this issue. Okay, interesting. Again, the record shows that NARA was taking a cautious incremental approach that aimed to achieve legal compliance without litigation. Then why did they stop? If, if that was NARA's approach to this matter, and they're like, eh, we don't need to go to DOJ. We can... We're still continuing discussions with the White House and Trump's representatives, and there's still a chance we can resolve the issue. Okay, well, then what caused them to go to DOJ? Perhaps some discovery should be granted that would illuminate that. Again, the record shows that NARA was taking a cautious incremental approach that aimed to achieve legal compliance without litigation. Yeah, Kelly. Thank you. Over in um, on Rumble, Kelly says one person said that in the email. Yeah, but all the rest were pushing DOJ and they redacted much of that combo. Exactly. Ball passes with little progress in retrieving the mis missing records. In September 2021, one of Trump's PRA representatives expressed puzzlement over the suggestion that there were 24 boxes, asserting that only 12 boxes had been found in Florida. In an effort to resolve the, quote, the dispute over whether there are 12 or 24 boxes, NARA officials discussed with Sue the possibility of convening a meeting with two of Trump's PRA representatives, the former chief of staff and the former deputy White House counsel, and possibly former White, Trump's former White House staff secretary. On Redacted, a call took place among Worm official. Why is that Redacted? Is that a date? Why is that date redacted? 
A call took place among Worm Official One and another Worm employee, Trump's former chief of staff, the former deputy White House counsel, and Sue, about the continued failure to produce presidential records, but the call did not lead to a resolution. Again, there was no complaint from either of Trump's PRA representatives about Sue's participation in the call. Redacted, 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 redacted. Some two months after that, on January 17th, 2022, nearly a year after he left office and more than six months after NARA requested them, Trump released 15 boxes to be delivered to NARA by truck. Although Trump knew there were dozens of boxes remaining at Mar-a-Lago, he provided no more to NARA. Finally, 15 boxes arrive at NARA. The truck from Mar-a-Lago completed its journey to NARA the following day, January 18, 2022. A NARA official was on hand to receive the delivery. Upon NARA's review of the box's contents, they discovered documents with classified classification markings. Redacted. His review of the boxes revealed at least one document that was Special Access Program, SAP, or SAP, referring to a Special Access Program whose distribution within the government is highly restricted. The shifting accounts of the number of missing boxes, redacted, 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 raised concerns about whether any comprehensive search for presidential records had yet been done. Redacted, 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 which was entirely consistent with the statutory role of the Attorney General to bring court actions to retrieve missing records, 44 U.S.C. 2905A, inappropriate given the self-evident national security threat of classified records existing outside of government custody or safe storage in the hands of a former president with no authority to possess them. For their part, the ODAG officials instructed NARA on January 24, 2022, to notify its Inspector General and the Inspector General for the Intelligence Community. One of the ODAG officials also provided the names of two DOJ officials responsible for overseeing investigations of potential offenses involving public officials or arising from the discovery of classified materials. Referrals to those offices with authority to consider the security concerns prompted by the revelation that Trump possessed classified records at Mar-a-Lago was, again, entirely appropriate and in no way indicative of political bias. And the investigation that followed confirmed that the concerns were more than justified, as dozens more boxes were discovered and hundreds more classified documents were recovered. Referral to DOJ on February 9th, 2022, NARA made its formal, formal referral to DOJ. That referral was entirely consistent with the government's long-standing interest in enforcing laws safeguarding national defense information. As Trump has stated, quote, service members have risked their lives to acquire classified intelligence to protect our country, and in my administration, I'm going to enforce all laws concerning the protection of classified information. No one will be above the law using his own words against him, or so they think. The defendants nonetheless labeled the referral a sham. The defendants do not explain what a sham referral might be, much less what legal significance it might have. 
but their contention is grounded in a timeline of events on February 9, 2022, which shows communications between NARA and DOJ about a congressional inquiry, followed later in the day by the formal referral by NARA's Inspector General to DOJ. It remains a mystery why the conjunction of those events is suspicious. The concerns about Trump's retention of government records and dilatory responses, or dilatory responses, had mounted for months. DOJ had responsibilities and authorities that NARA did not have, and NARA OIG had an ample factual basis to make a referral. Far from being a sham, the referral became necessary after months of efforts, including several rounds of communications with Trump PRA representatives. They failed to confirm that Trump had returned any and all classified information that he removed from the White House. I want to give a comment real quick. So if you take this at face, like as they're offering it, if you take it just as they're offering it, that Trump kept all of these classified documents and then fought returning them, stonewalled, blocked, played games, refused to return these boxes to NARA, and within them were all these classified documents. What the special counsel's office is alleging is that Trump intentionally and knowingly stuffed classified materials into boxes in between posters of the map of Hurricane Dorian and autographed Celine Dion CDs and coats and hats that he got at various events. And that he took those to Mar-a-Lago and he had them those boxes piled around Mar-a-Lago just everywhere, completely unsecured. And that he did this for, I don't know what reason, but that he did it because he's reckless and he's bad, whatever. Like if you keep going along with their theory of this, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like why, like the theory of the crime is that what Trump just, Trump just wanted these various classified things that happened to be at the white house. And he stuffed them into boxes and then had them strewn about. And he just wanted to keep them because he wanted to. Like, what is the, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, what is the, what is the criminal mind here in him doing this? What is his goal? Is it just, I think it's just, I think you have to believe Orange Man bad in order for it to really make sense for you and to be like, oh yeah, of course he did that. But where my mind is at on it is that one, Trump didn't pack any boxes. The GSA did. The GSA packed the boxes. Trump didn't go around throwing things into boxes and packing up the White House. The GSA did. And the GSA is responsible for what they put in those boxes. The other thing I'm thinking about is the fact that Trump declassified thousands of documents on January 19th, uh, namely the Crossfire Hurricane Binder, and Trump declassified those things 
made the announcement they were declassified, gave Meadows a copy of the Crossfire Hurricane Binder, gave John Solomon a copy of it. John Solomon goes off to make copies of it. Then John Solomon gets a call to come back to the White House because DOJ wants to do more redactions under, uh, under personal information to prevent more personal information in there, block out some names and stuff like that. And I think that the Biden admin reclassified those documents. So you have what you don't, what you have here is not, not documents that Trump took that are classified. It's documents that Trump took that were unclassified on January 19th that he are declassified, excuse me, documents Trump declassified that were in his office that got packed up by GSA sent to Mar-a-Lago. And then the Biden admin reclassifies them, thus creating a crime. And so Trump then has classified documents, but when he took them, they were not classified. They're still marked as classified because he declassified them on his last next to last day in office. So they still have those labels on them because they never went through the process to get those labels like stamped with declassified and all that stuff. Which is why, and I've made this point several times, it's so important that Trump gets the discovery on the internal communications for the classification review. Because there was a review done on these documents to decide their classification, to determine whether or not they were classified and at what level they were classified, if they were. And it's so incredibly important for Trump's team to get access to that discovery so they can show that these documents were declassed by Trump and then reclassified by the Biden administration in order to create the crime. That's my theory anyway. Okay. Risto, that's not correct, actually. You're talking about the original classification authority. Um, Trump can, the, the person who classified something can declassify. Um, so um, if you, the original classification authority can declassify and reclassify. But if something is declassed and then the next administration decides that it needs to be reclassified, they can do that. But that's they have to go through the process of it. Um, but the original classification authority the person, the the agency or person, such as Trump, who originally classified something, um, can declass it, and that's what Trump did. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're you got it. You got it. Um, your mind's in the right spot on it. Okay, PRA compliance, not circumvention. Finally, the defendant suggests that a NARA official initially sought to evade and later violated the PRA when the FBI interviewed him on February 11th, two days after the referral. The full text of the interview report dispels the defendant's nefarious account of selected excerpts, 
In full, the relevant portion of Exhibit 2 states, quote, prior to the FBI interview, NARA official consulted with NARA General Counsel about the parameters for discussing the materials NARA received recently, which included likely classified documents, likely, without triggering the obligation to notify the record holder and the incumbent United States president of the inquiry. Pardon me. NARA official was advised and agreed and agreed not to disclose content, content of the classified documents to the interviewing agents. Rather than evidencing an effort to circumvent the PRA by the NARA official, the NARA general counsel, the FBI, or anyone else, the complete picture reflects a careful effort to comply with the PRA, while also providing accurate information to the FBI without alerting the subject of the nascent federal investigation to its status as is standard in any case. The NARA official complied with these objectives by refraining from describing to the agents what any of the documents said. The inventories he provided to the FBI were likewise an exercise in caution, as the defense exhibits show. The inventories contain only generic titles for the documents, their dates, if available, the number of pages, and their classification level. It was entirely consistent with the PRA for the NARA official to provide these general descriptions and documents to the FBI without going through the statute's notice provisions. Investigations lead to indictment. From the moment of the referral, this investigation adopted a measured, graduate, a graduated approach. Each investigative step revealed facts confirming the suspicions or concerns that prompted it. In light of NARA's discovery of more than 180 documents with classification markings that had been stored at Mar-a-Lago prior to their transfer to NARA, the Department of Justice understandably sought to ensure that no additional classified material was being kept there. Which is why they didn't search everywhere. They <laughs> DOJ wanted to ensure there were no additional classified material as long as it wasn't in the locked closet or the hidden room. On May 11th, 2022, a federal grand jury issued a subpoena to the office of Donald J. Trump, seeking the production of all documents with classification markings in the possession of that office or Trump himself. Trump responded to that subpoena on June 3rd, 2022 via his attorneys. They turned over to the FBI and DOJ 38 additional documents marked classified from Mar-a-Lago. Guys, if they were classified, it would say they were classified. If they were actually classified, it would say documents which were classified. Instead, it says marked classified because they were marked classified but had been declassified. Just saying. Confirming what the earlier evidence suggested. That even after the production of documents to NARA, Trump continued to retain not only presidential records that belong to the United States, but highly sensitive classified documents relating to the national defense. During their visit to Mar-a-Lago, FBI agents noticed surveillance cameras, including in the vicinity of the storage room where Trump's attorney had found classified documents. In June 2022, the grand jury issued a subpoena for camera footage from Mar-a-Lago. A review of that footage, combined with other information obtained during the investigation, revealed that between May 23, 2022 and June 2, 2022, Waltine Nada, acting at Trump's direction, moved approximately 64 boxes from the storage room to Trump's residence, with Nada and Carlos de Oliveira, or de Oliveira later moving approximately 30 boxes back to the storage room after Trump's attorney's review. 
as described in the superseding indictment. At that point, the government had evidence strongly suggesting a deliberate effort to conceal boxes from Trump's lawyer's search, in effect thwarting compliance with the subpoena, leaving the government with no choice but to seek a search warrant. Execution of the August 2022 search warrant included the use of filter personnel to avoid the investigative team's exposure to any privileged materials and resulted in the seizure of 102 documents bearing classification markings, again, confirming that the earlier evidence suggested, or what the earlier evidence suggested, there were still more classified documents being secreted at Mar-a-Lago. Even then, no indictment immediately followed. Instead, the government undertook a careful and thorough investigation, obtaining numerous documents, executing search warrants on various electronic devices. Whose devices? Ooh. And interviewing... Holy shit. Am I right? Holy shit. Am I right? Let's go back to my templates article. Where is it at? Where is it at in here? Here it is. Okay, yep, here it is. From my templates article. So, justhuman.substack.com. I wrote this article right after the raid. And I found something. Okay, the former president is quite well well protected, blah, blah. Any raid, let me zoom in on my article. Yeah. Any raid of his property would have to be coordinated with his security teams. There's no question about it. The last thing any involved party would want is some kind of incident between private security, secret service, and the FBI. So there had to have been some foreknowledge and such coordination has been since been confirmed. But for Scavino to post the hint with the door before the search warrant was ever signed, that really makes the mind wonder. They knew the raid was coming. This is all coordinated and part of a plan. Now, this is what... Um, I might be right about something. So, Magistrate Judge Reinhardt, he's the guy who signed off on all the orders, right? So, when this raid happened, one of the things I did was I went and checked Magistrate Judge Reinhardt's... Um, docket to go see what he had done that day on the date of august 5th which is the date that judge reinhardt signed the search warrant i found two other search warrants in a telephone records order and uh there was sealed i think that's a misspelling it should be pen register order okay so right here i found a search warrant uh pen register search warrant uh, telephone record search warrant, and another sealed search warrant, okay? These were all signed by Judge Bruce Reinhardt, or, uh, yeah, Judge Bruce Reinhardt on the same day as the Mar-a-Lago search warrant. And one of these is, this one right here, I believe it's this one, uh, 08332. That is the Mar-a-Lago search warrant. But these other ones remain sealed. And so I wrote, we do not know if all of these are related to the raid on Mar-a-Lago, but it is reasonable to keep that possibility in mind. The first one 
that ends in 08332 is the Mar-a-Lago raid for which we have the most documents unsealed, including the search warrant and the property receipt. It is also the one that we are expecting to get a partially redacted affidavit. This is all back then. This is all written from in August 2022. Here are the links for the other dockets if anybody wants to keep track. The last search warrant, 08338, is still restricted as of this writing, but check out the activity on that docket and the parties right here. So it looks like, even though all of it's restricted and the judge has kept it restricted, all of the um, this other one, that's 083388, all of the media immediately filed to get access to this document. And the government... Um, denied and the judge denied unsealing the search warrant and look it had the same u.s attorneys it's all it's all the same u.s attorney's office these search warrants like i said we do not know if this case is related to marlago raid but it's worth watching it to see if it is so since then folks because i'm this i've been nerding out on this thing i kept these bookmarked Again, these are all the these are the search warrants that Judge Reinhardt signed on August fifth, twenty twenty two. He signed all of these that that morning. So this one right here, zero eight three three two. This is the main Mar-a-Lago search warrant docket, where there's been a ton of filings. This is where we got the receipt. This is where we got the affidavit, all of that stuff. But there's also this search warrant for telephone records. And look, it's still sealed. Still sealed. Does it even list the parties? There's a party, the U.S. attorney that's on it, sealed. It's been, it's been a year and a half. Still sealed. Pen register. A pen register is for um, keypads. Like, um, it's a search warrant for an electronic device and it wants the keystrokes. So like whatever was typed into, uh, like a security, uh, keypad or, um, something like a computer, like it's, it's, it's all of everything that was logged into that, that keypad. Look at this one. It's been a year and a half signed August 5th. It's still sealed. The parties that are on it. U.S. attorney still sealed. It's been a year and a half. And then this one, 08338, still sealed. And what I was pointing out in my article is that it's got the same U.S. attorney's office and the U.S. attorney to be notified is sealed. And as soon as this was filed, you look right here, restricted document, restricted document on the 10th. And then, let's see, the press filed to get access to this, and they said they had to know we're not unsealing it. Um, paperless order advising, uh, see, there's Times Union, that's it. A letter motion was filed by the Times Union to try and get access to this. Um, it was denied, and it's still, it's never been the U.S. attorney filed in there and said, nope, we got to keep this sealed. And a paperless order was issued denying the motion to unseal. And it is still a year and a half later. It's still sealed. So my contention 
uh, or my idea back when I wrote this article about the Mar-a-Lago raid is that, look, Judge Reinhardt signed all of these search warrants at the same time, the same morning, the same day as the Mar-a-Lago search. So it makes, and then two of them, the press filed to get access to being successful on only one of them. And I've kept these in mind as a possibility. And now reading Jack Smith's response, the government undertook a careful and thorough investigation, obtaining numerous documents, executing search warrants, plural, on various electronic devices. What do you want to bet that this is one of them? And this is one of them. And in all likelihood, this is also one of them. So we think we know the scope of this investigation right now. But really, we don't. I may be, I may have been right. Maybe, maybe I was right way back then. All right. And interviewing dozens of witnesses to shed light on the nature of classified documents, Trump's document handling practices, the, the documents journey from White House to Mar-a-Lago and the various places they were improperly stored there, including in the basement storage room. Unsurprisingly, much of that investigation required the government to obtain evidence and information from various federal agencies and employees. For example, because the classified documents seized during the execution of the search warrant derived from various entities within the intelligence community, the government sought information from those entities, as it would for any, from any victim in a criminal case, and further sought information from the current classification status of each document. The government also sought information and documents from NARA, including by issuing a subpoena from the originals contained within the 15 boxes of documents that Trump returned to NARA in January 2022. The government additionally sought information from the Secret Service and the White House Communications Agency about secure facilities at Mar-a-Lago, both during and after Trump's presidency. In each case, the government followed DOJ communication protocols including, where appropriate, by routing communications with White House employees through ODAG. At no point did any of these entities participate in the investigation other than as witnesses, help, pres help present the case to the grand jury, accompany any prosecutors to court proceedings, or help develop prosecutorial strategy. The investigation, once completed, uncovered evidence substantiating that Trump admitted in July 2021 at his home in New Jersey that he had secret military invasion plans and showed them to others, two, was well aware of what was in the boxes, and three, had directed the movement of boxes to conceal them from his lawyer's review on June 2, 2022, four, had suggested to his lawyer after the review that the lawyer remove damaging documents and not turn them over to investigators, and five, had sought to have surveillance camera footage of the box movement deleted 
before it could ever be turned over. This is another reason why I want this case to go to trial because I want all of these allegations right here to get blown up in trial. The investigation also revealed the involvement of defendants Nada and De Oliveira in the scheme to conceal the boxes and delete the footage, as well as their lies to investigators. On the basis of these facts, a grand jury returned a 38-count indictment against Trump and Nada on June 8th, followed by a 42-count superseding indictment against Trump, Nada, and De Oliveira on July 27th, 2023. Following indictment, the government began producing discovery that exceeded in scope and timing that to which the defendants were entitled under law. The government has produced all oral, written, or recorded statements of the defendants, all documents and objects obtained from the defendants, all documents and objects that the government intends to use in its case in chief, and the expected testimony of its intended expert witnesses. Okay, seven. What does that footnote say? As discussed in more detail below, the defendants claim that the government has failed to produce CCTV footage in usable form stems largely from user error by defense counsel and has since been addressed and is mute, moot. Okay. Another footnote, the defendants inaccurately claim that the special counsel has yet to produce to defense counsel forensic images of the devices it obtained during the course of its investigation. The government's filter attorney provided the full forensic images of NADA's phones and Apple iCloud accounts to NADA's counsel on August 14, 2023, the full forensic image of NADA's Microsoft email account to NADA's counsel on August 29th, etc., etc. Because defense counsel are not entitled to privileged material for anyone other than their own client, the government provided Trump's counsel the filtered, scoped content of NADA and De Oliveira's electronic device and accounts. And the government provided all defense counsel the filtered scoped content of non-defendant electronic devices or accounts obtained during the investigation. Okay, let's see, right up right here. The government has also produced much more. For example, during the investigation, the FBI recorded nearly all of its witnessed interviews to ensure complete and accurate accounts and to minimize any disputes about what was said and the associated recordings, along with transcripts, have been produced well in advance of what the Jinx Act requires. In addition, the government has produced transcripts and reports from interviews stemming from a separate investigation into the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election undertaken by the special counsel's office in United States v. Trump in D.C., where those transcripts and interviews were with witnesses who are expected to testify in this case. Footnote. The defendant's misleading claim that these productions revealed that one of the trial attorneys in the election case participated in approximately 29 of the interviews described in discovery in this case, while Jay Bratt, a trial attorney in this case, participated in 10 of the interviews that have been produced in discovery in the D.C. case. The defense would have the court believe that the trial attorney in the election case participated in witness interviews related to this case, while Bratt participated in witness interviews related to the election case. As the defendants well know, that is false. Rather, the fact that these two cases have overlapping witnesses has resulted in some degree of overlapping discovery production out of an abundance of caution. But in any event, the defendant's mischaracterization has no bearing on the motion to compel, 
since the government has considered all of the prosecutors in the special counsel's office part of the prosecution team, as it has stated in correspondence with defense counsel. In total, the government has provided more than 1.28 million pages of unclassified discovery. Summing up, as the exhibits and an accurate timeline attest, the defendant's narrative overlooks the fact that various federal agencies confronted and appropriately responded to an extraordinary situation resulting entirely from the defendant's conduct. NARA first sought over a protracted period to retrieve documents from President Trump's PRA representatives, whose responses were dilatory, shifting, and incomplete. As NARA attempted to carry out its statutory responsibilities from 2021 into 2022, highly classified documents set in a ballroom, bathroom, office space, and a basement storage room at a social club traversed by thousands of members, employees, and guests. NARA rightly involved other government agencies that had equities and authorities that it did not, as necessary to navigate an unprecedented situation. The White House Counsel's Office became involved because of the need to consult its personnel about missing Trump administration presidential records. DOJ became involved because of the Attorney General's authority to retrieve records through court action and later to assess whether a criminal inquiry was warranted all well outside of NARA's archival function. And the intelligence community became relevant once the alarming fact emerged that Trump's boxes contained classified records that he had no authority to keep, let alone store in boxes at his residence, where the defendants perceived bias, weaponized use of authorities, and a sham referral, all attributed to an undifferentiated Biden administration. The record shows only different government agencies with specific portfolios and responsibilities at work to solve an increasingly vexing and concerning problem. That is hardly surprising, and it in no way, shape, or form supports the hyperbolic claim of politically motivated operatives launching a crusade against President Trump. The defendant's legal problems are solely of their own making. Damn. Guys, gotta give props to Jack Smith right there. Gotta give him props for those last few paragraphs. Those were good. They were. Okay, argument. There is no general constitutional right to discovery in a criminal case. Weatherford versus Bercy, 1977. Instead, a defendant's right to discovery is prescribed principally by Rule 16a of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment, as construed by Brady v. Maryland, 1963, and its progeny and the Jinx Act, uh, United States v. Jordan, 2003. Relying on Rule 16a, 1EI, and the Brady Doctrine, the defendants move to compel the disclosure of various items, which they group into six main categories, plus two additional uncategorized claims listed in the appendix below. To prevail on that motion, the defendants must make three showings. First, they must describe the information they seek with sufficient particularity to demonstrate that the evidence is, quote, material to preparing the defense under Rule 16, or material to guilt or punishment under Brady. 
Second, they must demonstrate that the information they seek is within the government's possession, custody, or control. Third, the information they seek must not be protected from disclosure by applicable privilege. Each of the defendant's discovery requests fails to satisfy one or more of these requirements. Many fail to seek evidence um, yeah, many fail to seek evidence material to preparing their defense because they are not specific or are not accompanied by an explanation of how the items sought will significantly alter the proof in the defense's favor or are grounded in speculation and conjecture. Other requests seek evidence that if in existence, would fall outside of the scope of Rule 16 and Brady because it has nothing to do with factual guilt or innocence. Indeed, most of the motion to compel is devoted to the defendant's request for discovery to support their unfounded allegation that the investigation and prosecution of this case have been tainted by political bias. Which is a straightforward claim of selective prosecution governed by rigorous discovery standards. In other instances, the defendants seek information held by non-investigatory government entities without providing any sufficient basis for concluding that the information is within the prosecution team's possession, custody, or control, and it is not. Finally, some of what the defendant seeks is protected from disclosure by the work product and deliberative process doctrines. The extensive discovery that the government has provided exceeds in both scope and timing that to which the defendants are entitled under law. But the defendants are not permitted to the wide-ranging, irrelevant, and often non-existent discovery that they now request. The court should deny the motion to compel in its entirety. One additional point. The defendants begin the argument section of their motion with a broad and abstract request that the court define the prosecution team for discovery purposes. The defendants cite no authority for conducting that inquiry detached from any specific request. The government has explained to the defendants that the prosecution team consists of, quote, the prosecutors of the special counsel's office and law enforcement officers of the FBI who are working on this case, including members of the FBI's Washington Field Office and Miami Field Division. That definition accords with the law and standard practice. In contrast, the defendants' broad brush and undifferentiated approach would sweep into the prosecution team a variety of independent agencies and entities, despite the fact that those entities did not participate in the investigation or prosecution, except as victimized government entities, sources of evidence, or the like. The defendant's expansive view of the prosecution team is wrong factually and legally. Moreover, this court should reject the defendant's request to define the prosecution team in the abstract. Discovery requests should be evaluated through the lens of a specific request for materials that the court can apply in logical fashion, the legal requirements that govern, govern discovery, whether a specific request seeks discoverable, discoverable material in the first place, and in certain instances whether the government has already furnished all responsive materials. The resolution of those standard discovery inquiries makes nearly all of the defendant's prosecution team arguments irrelevant. If instances arise in which the court will still need to determine whether the particular item is within the government's possession, custody, or control, focusing on what items are at issue will help narrow the zone of dispute. The government therefore responds where appropriate to the defendant's expansive and unfounded definition of the prosecution team 
in the context of its response to the specific request below. Hey, we got an mRNA bot. Goodbye, bot. Okay. I'm going to skip the applicable law section, I think. Because I don't think I have time to do all that and do the end of this. Um, not that it's not important, but... I am running up against the clock. Here, I will I will read the the base the um main thrust of it. Defendants seek to compel discovery must uh must show that the evidence they seek is material to their defense. A showing of materiality requires a specific request for an item, accompanied by an explanation of how that item will be helpful to the defense at trial. Requests for information pertaining to an allegation of selective prosecution or political bias do not satisfy the materiality requirement of Rule 16 or Brady. Defendants are not entitled to discovery of items that are not within the government's possession, custody, or control. Ooh, this is about Alex Saab right here. Let me, I want to see what this says about Alex Saab. It's in United States versus Saab Moran. For purposes of Rule 16, that agencies, including the Department of Defense, State Department, Department of Treasury, Office of Internal International Affairs, and DOJ National Security Division, and the U.S. Coast Guard, although connected in some way to the case, were not, quote, involved in the underlying investigation leading to the charges and therefore were not part of the prosecution team. Okay. Okay. Defendants are not entitled to discovery of internal government correspondence and memoranda or to documents that are otherwise privileged. All right, discussion. Here's where I want to be. Yeah. All that legal stuff is important, but we're going to skip it for now for the sake of time and um, get to the discussion. Applying these principles to the defendant's discovery request shows that their motion to compel should be denied in full. The defendants group um, their request into six main categories in which they seek one, evidence of improper coordination with NARA to abuse the grand jury process. Two, evidence relating to the attempt to retroactively terminate President Trump's security clearance and related disclosures. Three, evidence relating to the use of secure facilities at President Trump's residences, which Jack Smith and team do not want to admit exist. Four, evidence of bias and investigative misconduct. Five, all correspondence and or communications concerning the search of Mar-a-Lago. Six, CCTV footage. Uh, these also include two additional uncategorized requests, 
7. The removal of redactions. And 8. The production of unclassified discovery of certain materials produced in classified discovery. Each request, to the extent it seeks evidence that has not already been turned over, fails to establish one or more of the requirements for a motion to compel, namely, that the evidence sought must be material to the defense, must be within the government's possession, custody, and control, and must not be protected from disclosure by the applicable privilege. The court should deny defendant's request for evidence of improper coordination with NARA and of bias in investigative misconduct. Good morning, Wild Boar. Two of the categories of information sought in the motion to compel can be considered and rejected in tandem. Specifically, the request for evidence purportedly showing improper coordination with NARA to abuse the grand jury process and evidence of purported bias and investigative misconduct are both grounded in a request for information that is neither material to the defense for purpose of Rule 16 nor material to the guilt or punishment for purposes of Brady and should therefore be denied in toto. Moreover, many of the specific requests within these two categories seek evidence from agencies, including NARA, the White House, and the intelligence community, that are not part of the prosecution team. And any items that may, in fact, be within the possession, custody, or control of the government are privileged and not subject to disclosure. To be clear, the defendant's requests are, are predicated on a false narrative. The investigation and prosecution of this case have been appropriately driven by the facts and the law, not by any form of political bias. Really hard to believe that. Really hard to believe that. I'm looking at the footnote real quick. This is the footnote 15 that comes from bias and investigative misconduct. Within, within this category, the defendants specifically, blah, blah, blah. the defendants specifically request a communications with prosecution team members regarding the underlying investigation by members, relatives, or associates of the Biden administration. B communications between the Biden administration and prosecutors in Georgia regarding any of the pending prosecutions of President Trump. C. Classified materials and supporting documentation relating to January 6, 2021 submission to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence by the Intelligence Community Analytic Ombudsman, Dr. Barry Zulaw. D. Documents and communications within NARA relating to the nine listed topics. E. Documents and communications reflecting bias and or political animus toward President Trump by members of the prosecution team. And F. Additional communications con concerning Mr. Woodward including mis internal communications about Mr. Woodward's um, August 24th, 2022 interaction with Mr. Bratt. That's the one where it's alleged that he tried to bribe Woodward with a uh, judgeship or nomination to a judgeship. The selective prosecution claims are not material to the defense for purposes of Rule 16 in Brady. At trial, the jury will be asked to decide whether Trump willfully retained documents containing highly sensitive national defense information at a time when he was not authorized to possess them, whether the defendants conspired to and did obstruct justice, 
and whether they made false statements to or engaged in a scheme of concealment toward the grand jury and the FBI. The jury will not be asked to decide whether the investigation and prosecution of the case were, quote, politically motivated and biased, and whether there was, quote, an abuse of the grand jury process, or whether there was some other defect in instituting the prosecution. Ignoring this black-letter law, the defendants plan to make these precise issues central to their defense at trial, and they say as much in their motion to compel. Asserting evidence of biased participation in the investigation, referring to President Trump's bias defense, referring to President Trump's bias and due process defenses, referring to President Trump's defense relating to intelligence community, bi community bias, referring to his defense relating to the politically motivated and biased nature of the investigation that led to the pending charges, referring to President Trump's defense regarding the politically motivated nature of the prosecution, and referring to President Trump's defense that the charges against him are politically motivated, and referring to President Trump's defense that its prosecution is improper and politically motivated, and referring to President Trump's political bias defense, and it keeps going, golly, seeking evidence reflecting bias or political animus towards President Trump by members of the prosecution team, asserting bias reflected in an ODAG's attorney's work for a partisan advocacy group, and referring to bias posts on social media from former attorney at DOJ's office of legal... Man, you know, one would think, since there's all these specific examples that you just listed, Jack, that maybe there might be something to the bias. <laughs> <laughs> Although the motions studiously avoid using the terms selective prosecution, all of the requests seeking evidence of purported bias, coordination, and misconduct are, at bottom, attempts to challenge the prosecution's conduct of the case by alleging that the decision to investigate and prosecute Trump was infected by political bias, a para paradigmatic a paradigmatic claim of selective prosecution. Wow, don't use that word very often. A paradigmatic claim of selective prosecution. I like it. I'm going to try and I'm going to try and use that word later this week in some other context. The defendant's discovery requests are therefore governed by Armstrong's rigorous standards. And this would be true if the defendants could plausibly contend that their claims are grounded in a challenge to the prosecution's conduct of the case other than a claim of selective prosecution. Yeah, Maggie. You can hear uh you can hear Mrs. Human back there. And I gotta admit, I gotta admit, guys, personal note. I definitely need to get some soundproof curtains. Now, I definitely need to make it so that you can't hear her bleeding over. But on a personal note, I can tell she's happy at her job. And as her husband, that makes me very happy. Because it's been 10 plus years of her at a job where she was very unhappy. So hearing, hearing, her, hearing her laugh while on a work call makes me really happy. I'm really, I'm really thankful for it. Like I'm sitting here being happy about it. Um, okay. Back to this, back to this document, which we are very upset about. 
Grr, Jack Smith, how dare you? Grr. All right. Defendants pointedly fail to address, let alone satisfy, the Armstrong standard. Footnote 16. To make a showing that defendants... Make a showing that defendants would have to identify a similarly situated comparator, quote, who engaged in the same type of conduct, which means that the comparator committed the same basic crime in substantially the same manner as the defendant, so that any prosecution of that individual would have the same deterrence value and would be related in the same way to the government's enforcement priorities and enforcement plan, and against whom the evidence was as strong or stronger than that against the defendant. If the defendants attempt to make such a showing in a future motion as they have forecasted they intend to, the government will address that meritless claim at the appropriate time. Okay. I expect you would. Instead, they seek to evade it entirely by characterizing their bias claims as a part of a trial defense, thereby purporting to trigger the government's obligation under Rule 16 and Brady. But these efforts fail. Yeah, thanks, guys. It is awesome. We're, I'm, we're very thankful. Their argument rests on a misunderstanding of the proper division of responsibility between judge and jury in a federal criminal proceeding. By both tradition and constitutional mandate, the jury is given the responsibility of determining guilt or innocence according to instructions of law delivered by the court. But because a selective prosecution claim, quote, has no bearing on the determination of factual guilt, it presents an issue for the court to decide, not an issue for the jury. Consistent with that principle, courts in this district and elsewhere routinely preclude defendants from, from presenting such evidence and argument to the jury. Defendants might suggest to the jury that they should be acquitted based on a theory of selective prosecution that would plainly be inappropriate, given the well-settled proposition that selective prosecution is a defect that has no bearing on the determination of a defendant's actual factual guilt. Okay, I, we can understand that. That makes sense. Selective prosecution may be a thing, but that can exist separate and apart from whether that defendant committed a crime or not. It's two different questions. Was it selective? And then was there actually a crime and did the defendant commit the crime? Presenting such evidence and argument would merely encourage the jury to render a lawless verdict, since its only relevance would be to inspire a jury to exercise its power of nullification. Yep, that would be the point. The defendants invoke the principle that the Brady Doctrine encompasses, quote, evidence that the defense might have used to impeach the government's witnesses by showing bias or interest. To be sure, the ability to show bias, motive, or prejudice on the part of a witness is an integral part of cross-examination, but the defendants go to great lengths to conflate the concepts of witness bias and selective prosecution. Witness bias speaks to the reliability of the witness and is properly used to call into question the credibility of that witness's testimony. Selective prosecution is a separate and distinct claim the defendant has been unconstitutionally selected for prosecution. Here, the government has produced and will continue to produce evidence 
that could be used to impeach the testimony of its trial witnesses, including on the basis of bias, motive, or prejudice. But evidence of that nature properly falls within the ambit of Rule 16a and Brady precisely because it bears on factual guilt or innocence. The defendant's claims that they were improperly targeted for prosecution do not. So Jack Smith is really pushing here against this notion of selective prosecution. It's almost like he's addressing... It's like he's addressing Trump's motion to dismiss for selective prosecution. At the same time, he's addressing the, the, uh, the motion to compel discovery. Like, we're supposed to be reading a document that is refuting the motion to compel discovery. And Jack Smith is denying discovery on several things because he's saying that this is just Trump rehashing his argument for dismissal for selective prosecution. The defendants similarly assert that attacking politically motivated nature of the case is one permissible form of impeachment at trial, but the cases on which they rely to address a different issue, namely whether the government engaged in misconduct during rebuttal closing argument when replying to the defense's counsel arguments that impugned the investigation. Finally, the defendants contend that the Brady Doctrine allows defendants to attack the reliability of the investigation and argue that it was shoddy, but the cases on which they rely stand for the proposition that if evidence regarding the quality of shoddiness or quality or shoddiness of an investigation should shed light at trial on the factual guilt or innocence of the defendant, the failure to disclose such evidence can be a Brady violation. When this principle is implicated, it is almost universally in cases where the main issue at trial is the perpetrator's identity. Occasionally, this principle is also implicated when the government's case-in-chief turns largely on the credibility of a particular fact witness. Neither of those situations is presented here. Indeed, the... Well, I don't know. I mean, Trump didn't pack the boxes. Is Jack Smith going to say that Trump packed the boxes and knew what was in them? Because I don't think that's the case. In fact, it was Cassidy Hutchison and the GSA who packed the boxes. Neither of those situations is presented here. Indeed, the defendant's claim is not that the investigation was shoddy, incomplete, or unreliable, but rather that it should not have been undertaken in the first place. Hmm. Okay. Here, there is no connection between the allegedly shoddy and slanted investigation and any evidence to be introduced at trial. The defendant's attempt to attack the investigation would only serve to divert the jury's attention from the issues at trial. Because the defendants failed to show that any of their requests for evidence of improper coordination with NARA to abuse the grand jury process or of bias and investigative misconduct are material to their defense or material to guilt or punishment, the court should deny the motion as it relates to the request falling within these two categories. Geezerman, good morning, Geezerman. Geezerman says, 
Um, this is just a bunch of lawfare. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> and Trump, Trump gets into a lot of lawfare purposefully. And this is just the latest one. Well, it's not even the latest one. It's just one of them. All right. Some of these requests seek evidence that does not exist or is not within the government's possession. Such as communications between the prosecution team and members, relatives, or associates of the Biden admin. Defendants seek the disclosure of communications with prosecution team members regarding the underlying investigation by members, relatives, or associates of the Biden administration. The defendants make no effort to define the term Biden administration to the extent that term refers to the president, vice president, and senior White House political officials. No communications between prosecutors and those individuals or their family members exist let alone communications about the investigation to the extent that the defendants request information from specific components within the executive branch, that contention is addressed below. Maggie. Yeah, it is. It kind of has this for part of this filing. It feels like Jack Smith is recycling his motion or his uh, response to the motions to dismiss. R.L. Skeeter asked, was Trump framed? I would say no. I think this is Matador's cloak. I think Trump, just like so many other cases, I think Trump wants this. I am 100%. Trump wants this. This is what he wants. But I guess it could be possible that he was framed and he wants that. Both could be true. Both could be true. Um, I do think he was quote unquote framed in the sense that materials he took that he declassified were then reclassified by the Biden administration. So I think he was framed in that sense, but still, I think he wanted that. I think he knew that would happen and he wanted it. The government has produced to the defendants all discoverable material from NARA. So Jack's contention is, hey, everything that's discoverable that relates to NARA has been turned over, at least as far as it being within. That's a qualifier there. That's a qualifier. Okay. The government has produced to the defendants all discoverable material from NARA within its possession. The defendants nevertheless asked the government to collect from NARA and produce documents and communications relating to nine specific topics. The defendants also seek to compel the disclosure of all reports, notes, and communications concerning the production of documents by NARA to DOJ, FBI, or the special counsel's office, and the decision to issue grand jury subpoenas to NARA during the course of those events. While not entirely clear, it appears that defendants are referring to reports, notes, and communications within NARA's possession, since the government has already produced non-privileged reports, notes, and communications within the possession of the special counsel's office or the FBI. These, requ these requests should be denied for the reasons discussed above. 
but also because Nara is not part of the prosecution team. The prosecutors do not, and did not, exert authority over Nara. Nara does not work under the direction or supervision of prosecutors, and Nara does not and did not function as an agent of prosecutors. In January 2022, Nara collected and reviewed 15 boxes from Trump before any criminal referral had occurred. In furtherance of its core function, which is to serve as the nation's record keeper, once Nara made the criminal referral in February, that's the next month, it did not pool its investigative energies or undertake a joint investigation. Instead, DOJ commenced a separate criminal investigation and NARA's involvement in the investigation consisted entirely of providing documents and information. For some requests, NARA provided the documents voluntarily when the government sought PRA records. However, NARA required a grand jury subpoena consisting with regulation, consistent with regulations under the PRA. No NARA personnel participated in interviews other than as witnesses. Okay. They presented the case to a grand jury, accompanied prosecutors to any court proceedings, or played any role in the development of prosecutorial strategy. These facts amply demonstrate that NARA was not part of the prosecution team. One of the defendants' specific requests regarding NARA warrants additional discussion. The request to compel disclosure of a group of 81 documents collected by NARA for possible production to DOJ in response to a subpoena. The basis for the request is the defendant's claim that a report the FBI prepared regarding a May 4th, 2023 meeting at NARA, quote, suggests that the special counsel's office instructed NARA not to provide certain of the 81 documents. But neither the FBI report nor the notes of a NARA official who attended the meeting both of which the government produced, says or even suggests any such thing. They both merely reflect that, upon receipt of a subpoena, NARA initially identified 81 documents that were potentially responsive. The government reviewed those documents and determined that only 15 were actually responsive, and NARA flagged those 15 per, for production. Neither the FBI 302 nor the notes at the exhibits indicate any direction, tasking, or guidance about what NARA should do with the remaining documents, let alone any instruction to withhold certain of the documents. That mistaken claim distorts an innocuous event by seeing it through the prism of a non-existent government-wide scheme to target Trump. Hmm. The White House. <coughs> the defendant's contention that certain White House components, including the National Security Council, the White House Council's Office, and the White House Office of Records Management, that's WORM, are part of the prosecution team is mistaken for multiple reasons. None of those entities played an investigatory role. Prosecutors have no authority over the White House or its constituent parts which in turn have never served as the prosecutor's agent. None of these entities pooled investigative resources or collaborate, collaborated extensively with prosecutors. 
No personnel from the National Security Council, White House Counsel's Office, the Office of Records and Management, or any other White House component participated in any interviews except as witnesses, presented the case to the grand jury, accompanied prosecutors to any court proceedings, or played any role in the development of prosecutorial strategy. And DOJ's associated contacts with the White House occurred in compliance with the department's White House contacts policy, facilitated through the office of the Deputy Attorney General. The defendants' contrary arguments lack merit. They contend, for example, that the National Security Council is part of the prosecution team because the government, quote, will be re required to rely on personnel from the National Security Council at trial to demonstrate that the documents it authored are classified and constitute information relating to the national defense. But that simplistic causal argument finds no basis in legal precedent and would wrongly imply that government, every government trial witness, or at least every victim, was automatically part of the prosecution team. The defendants likewise contend that the White House Counsel's Office and WORM are part of the prosecution team because they repeatedly supported the investigative activities of DOJ, FBI, and NARA. But that contention wrongly conflates communication and coordination, on the one hand, with the sort of authority-based relationship and joint participation required by prosecution team analysis in the 11th Circuit and others. The Intelligence Community The defendant... The defendants seek disclosure of classified materials and supporting documentation relating to the January 6, 2021 submission to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence by the Intelligence Community Analytic Ombudsman, Dr. Barry Zulov. And they appear to seek these materials from an array of entities making up the intelligence community, which, as identified in the superseding indictment in this case, encompasses six intelligence agencies and the Department of Defense. These entities are not part of the prosecution team for several reasons. First, like the White House, the members of the intelligence community identified in the superseding indictment are victims of Trump's alleged unlawful possession and retention of national defense information. The defendants cite no case to support the far-reaching proposition that any government agency victimized by criminal conduct becomes a part of the prosecution team simply by virtue of providing information to separate entities that carry out the investigation and prosecution. Second, the intelligence community entities at issue here played no investigatory role in this case. Whatever intelligence gathering functions the various entities in the intelligence community may otherwise possess, they were not issuing subpoenas, formulating investigative strategy, collecting evidence, and interviewing witnesses to, a, to further a criminal investigation. It follows that intelligence community members neither pooled their investigative energies nor engaged in a joint investigation. Third, the prosecutors do not exert authority over entities within the intelligence community. Whoa. Check out that name. Ahmed Alamedalabadalalakala. What do you think? Did I nail it? Did I nail it on the first try? I don't think I could say it the same way again. <laughs> I don't think I could say that name again the way I just said it. 
Okay. Assistance to obtain responsive materials. As Congress has observed, prosecutors cannot issue directives to intelligence uh, community entities from whom prosecutors must secure permission before representing any intelligence community information or documents in court proceedings. I won Scrabble. <laughs> Relatedly, none of the factors on which courts have relied supports a finding that the intelligence community was a member of the prosecution team. No one from any intelligence agency or military component participated in any witness interviews or was involved in the presentation to a grand jury, etc., etc., etc. The defendant's counter-argument lacks merit. Uh... They contend that the Office of the Director of National Intelligence's role in coordinating the classification... Okay, here's where I think I'm going to disagree with Jack Smith. Um, they contend that the Office of the Director of National Intelligence's role in coordinating a classification review of documents retrieved from Mar-a-Lago renders the ODNI and related intelligence components part of the prosecution team. But that role did not make ODNI part of the prosecution team for the reasons stated above. Moreover, the defendant's blanket, su blanket suggestion that any agency conducting a classification review becomes part of the prosecution team would fashion a per se rule inconsistent with the case-by-case -case analysis of the extent of interaction and cooperation between the prosecutors and the relevant entity. Nor are the defendants correct that the prior government filing... Okay, I'm gonna, going back to this. All right. I think I get what they're saying. That basically, just because the prosecution team interacted with other agencies and employees of those agencies in formulating their prosecution, in building their case, and collecting information or their case doesn't mean that those that they communicated with are part of the prosecution team and therefore Trump's gets discovery on those things. But I take contention with this ODNI here because Trump says that these documents were not classified. He unclassified, he declassified them and NARA Trump's team also contends that when NARA found the marked classified documents, the proper pathway for them uh, to proceed down was for them to go to the ODNI and say, hey, take a look at these documents. Are these, doc these documents we got from Mar-a-Lago are marked classified? Are they in fact classified? Can you check on that? Instead, NARA goes to the DOJ and says, we got marked classified documents from Mar-a-Lago. We need a search warrant. Because we think there's more. And DOJ's like, contact the invest contact the uh inspector general of NARA. And the inspector general of NARA is like, we have a problem here. There's a possible spillage of national defense information and classified documents. DOJ, open up an investigation. Here's a referral. But ODNI was the proper pathway. And the ODNI is the one who determined whether or not these documents are actually classified. That's where this, this classification review says it right here. Classification review of documents retrieved from Mar-a-Lago. The documents are 
like the, the whole alleged crime here is that Trump retained classified documents after being president. And as they were investigating this, they went to the ODNI after they already had an investigative referral and they had the ODNI conduct a classification review of the documents. I don't see how Jack Smith can argue that that isn't part of discovery, that review. That review is what substantiates the status of the classification of those documents. And that is where you would find out whether or not they were declassified and reclassified. Like this other stuff that we've been reading in this response, a lot of it, honestly, I can grok. I can get where Jack Smith is coming from. And there's no doubt about it. Trump's team's motion to compel, they, they cast as big of, of a net as possible, right? Like they, and that's totally understandable. That's what you do. They, they argued every, they wanted everything. They want the kitchen sink. They want the doorknobs, the light fixtures, the plumbing, the, they want everything. Totally understandable. And then it's the pro it's Jack Smith's job in response to say, no, 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 no. You can only have access to this. Here's the legal factual basis for it. We've already given you so much discovery. This is typical lawfare. This is what you ask big. The other party responds. No, they don't deserve anything or they only deserve a little bitty bit. Totally normal. And I get it. But this right here, I think, is so incredibly consequential. It's like, to, like it, I'm trying to figure out a different context and a different subject. Actually, I'm trying to figure out a different subject to put within the same context in order to better understand this because we don't always think about classification reviews. <laughs> or classified documents. So like, say it's a, like, um, I'm trying to think of a, a different crime where you would need to substantiate that the object of the crime was in fact, uh, what is alleged. So, um, possession of a stolen firearm comes to mind. So if you were charging, somebody with possession of a stolen firearm. I'm pretty sure the prosecution would need to substantiate the claim that the firearm was stolen. And so they would need to produce some report showing that this firearm was reported stolen. And it would be the defense's the defense team, they could argue no, this firearm was not reported stolen, it's not stolen. And they could get discovery on the stolen, the, the report saying it was stolen, right? And maybe they would find within that report, hey, there's an error. There's a serial number error on this firearm. It's, it, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's some mistake that was made. And this is not the same firearm. My client did not possess a stolen firearm. I know that's an imperfect analogy, but... It makes sense, I think, in a very simple way, that if you were charged with possession of a stolen firearm, the defense team would get discovery on the report that substantiated the claim 
that that firearm was stolen. And here, it's the ODNI's classification review, which substantiates the claim that these documents were classified. So therefore, it makes sense to me that Trump's team should get discovery on the review that determined these documents were classified. I hope that makes sense. To me, it makes a lot of sense. Geezerman says it makes sense. Thank you, Geezerman. The other stuff in here that Jack Smith is refuting and, you know, throwing a hand up and saying, hold up, he doesn't get all this discovery. I think Jack Smith is making a pretty good argument. I think whether we like it or not is beside the point. I think he's making a pretty good argument. Um, the, the, the scope of the prosecution team definitely does not extend as far as Trump's team argued it does. But here, I think he fails. Okay. Nor are the, back to his filing, nor are the defendants correct that prior government filings conceded that the intelligence community played such a critical role in the criminal investigation so as to become part of the prosecution team. In opposing a requested civil injunction that would have prevented FBI counterintelligence agents from reviewing uh, seized materials, the declaration filed by the FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence, Alan Kohler, simply underscored the importance of coordination between the FBI and other components in the intelligence community at that stage of the process. Specifically, the declaration explained that the FBI, with assistance from ODNI, as described above, had to obtain and deliver copies of the documents recovered from Mar-a-Lago to the appropriate agency or agencies with equities in those documents, so those agencies could assess the potential harms to national security resulting from any improper retention and storage of classified, classified information. You know what's interesting? That's the exact thing. That's the exact thing that they said about the declassified Crossfire Hurricane Binder. That's the, that's the same thing they said about that. Um, okay. Let me see if I can find the quote real quick. I swear that's the same that's the same thing they said about that binder of materials.
there's Cassidy. There's Cassidy Hutchinson, who helped pack these boxes. And what does she say? The Crossfire Hurricane binders are a complete disaster. They're still full of classified information. Hutchinson wrote to Cipollone, These Those binders need to come back to the White House, like now. The documents were returned the next morning. There's another, there's another article somewhere where it says that that's what they were looking at. Uh, I'll have to skip it for now. But I, I, I distinctly remember that as regards to Crossfire Hurricane Binder, and this it wasn't this recent reporting. It was back from that time. Um that there was a review going on on how much damage it would do. And like they were involving the other agencies to try and figure out if Trump declasses all this material, what's the fallout from that? I'll set it aside for now. I, I'll do a thread on this later, and I may, I may be able to link that in the thread. Um, although the FBI's coordination with affected agencies was integral to determining whether a classified document in the seized materials might have been compromised, those agencies largely had to rely on the FBI's full suite of authorities and tools to investigate and recover any improperly retained and stored classified information. Moreover, the intelligence community agencies were required to conduct this assessment regardless of whether there was any related criminal investigation, in keeping with their separate and distinct legal obligations and the mission of their agencies, just as extradition proceedings and criminal prosecutions are legally distinct events. Again, Alex Saab comes up. So too, the intelligence community's classification review and risk assessment process differ from the FBI's criminal investigation. The role that the intelligence community played at the outset in determining the nature and scope of the potential national security risk did not render them part of the prosecution team that conducted the criminal investigation. Related to the claim that the community, intelligence community is part of the prosecution team is the defendant's request that the court deem, quote, personnel from the counterintelligence division of the FBI's headquarters as part of the prosecution team. But the already produced documents from the FBI case file constitute all discoverable material stemming from the investigating agent's contact with FBI headquarters. So he's saying we already turned all that stuff over. The defendant's request for internal communications by members of the prosecution team. Finally, to the extent any request seeks material information within the government's custody and control that takes the form of internal communications within the Department of Justice or the Special Counsel's Office, such information is privileged from disclosure. With respect to the Department of Justice, generally the, the defendant suggests that they are entitled to internal correspondence and other materials uh, that are around key decisions during the investigation. 
putting aside the defendant's failure to cite a single case to support their broad assertion that high-level officials within the DOJ function as part of the prosecution team. Any internal discussions about prosecutorial strategy or key decisions fall well within the ambit of the work product and deliberative process privileges. Hmm. For example, the defendants seek to compel communications concerning Mr. Woodward, including communications about Mr. Woodward's August 24th, 2022 interaction with Mr. Bratt. They justify this request with the conclusory assertion that such communications would be material to the defense of this action, but they make no effort to explain what communications they seek or why they would be discoverable. Okay. The court should deny defendants' requests for evidence related to Trump's security clearance. The defendants next request evidence related to the attempt to retroactively terminate President Trump's security clearance and related disclosures. This request includes any information concerning President Trump's security clearances, read-ins, and related training, as well as where applicable, the failure to maintain formal documentation and training that is typically required. The defendants specifically assert that the government must search the Scattered Castles database, which is a database of security clearances maintained by the intelligence community, and a similar database maintained by the Department of Defense, the Defense Information System for Security, which replaced the Joint Personnel Adjudication System. The government has produced the results of a search in Scattered Castles, which yielded no past or present security clearances for Trump. Uh, well, then what happened to him? The government also made a records request to the Department of Defense, which likewise confirmed that neither the Defense Information System for Security nor the Central Verification System reflects a past or present security clearance for Trump. So these requests are therefore moot. The defendants also request information from the Department of Energy about Trump's inclusion in a Department of Energy database of those with a Q clearance, a specific type of security clearance granted by the Department of Energy for access to sensitive Department of Energy information. And DOE's determination reflected in a memorandum already produced to defendants that the Q clearance granted to Trump at the beginning of his presidency had terminated at the end of his presidency and that DOE databases should be updated to reflect the termination. The defendants specifically request that the government obtain from DOE, one, documents and communications relating to that decision, the drafting of the memorandum, any coordination with other members of the prosecution team on this issue, and the transmission of the memorandum to the prosecution team. Two, records relating to President Trump's uh, to President Trump from DOE's Central Personnel Clearance Index and Clearance Action Tracking System. And three, information about how the Department of Energy has handled and documented the clearances of prior presidents. The defendants contend that the requested information about security clearances, read-ins, and training is material to preparing their defense because the evidence is pertinent to Trump's unauthorized possession and willful retention of national defense information. They also contend that the information is discoverable in light of his bias and due process defenses. Claiming evidence is relevant to demonstrating bias in the intelligence community. The defendant's request should be denied for three reasons. <clears throat> First, 
the government has already produced all non-privileged responsive materials. The government produced to the defendants through discovery a memorandum authored by an assistant general counsel in DOE on June 28, 2023. The memorandum stated that DOE had granted a Q clearance to Trump on February 9, 2017, quote, in connection with his current duties as president, pursuant to a statutory provision that permits DOE to grant clearances without a background check if doing so is in the national interest. Let's look at these footnotes. The document charged in count 19 may be viewed by someone holding an active and valid Q clearance. So, hey, whatever document that is, Trump could legally have have and look at it with a Q clearance. Trump's Q clearance ended when his term in office ended even though the database was only belatedly updated some t- some two years later. But even if Trump's Q clearance had remained active, that fact would not give him the right to take any documents containing information subject to the clearance to his home and store it in his basin or anywhere else at Mar-a-Lago. No Q clearance holder has authorization to remove documents from a proper place of storage and keep them for himself, and a Q clearance would not even permit access to much less off-site possession of the documents charged in counts 1 through 18 and counts 20 through 32. Hmm. Okay. The other footnote. The authority to classify and control access to national defense information rests within the president. And accordingly, during their terms in office, presidents are not required to obtain security clearances before accessing classified information. Right. So why did he get a clearance? Those exceptions for the president and other high-ranking officials apply only during their terms of office. Okay, well then why did he get a clearance? The DOE granted Trump a Q clearance on February 9th, 2017 in connection with his current duties, quote-unquote, pursuant to a statutory provision that permits DOE to grant clearances without a background check if doing so is in the national interest. But he's president, and he doesn't need to have a clearance. So why, why do it? The memorandum further stated that when DOE officials learned that Trump remained listed in the DOE database as possessing a Q clearance after his term ended, they determined that Trump's clearance had terminated upon the end of his presidency and that the DOE databases should be updated to reflect that termination. In response to the defendant's motion, the government made a second request for documents to DOE on January 24th, 2024. Oh, so that's recently. And included the categories of information in Trump's request described above. The government is now produce a Trump one. The government is now producing approximately 30 pages of responsive materials while withholding eight emails under the deliberative process privilege. So, Hey, Jack Smith is complying with Trump's motion to compel discovery in this one narrow area. So Trump got 30 more pages already. 
Second, to the extent that defendants seek to compel discovery to try to substantiate their so-called bias and due process defenses, that rationale does not support discovery under Rule 16 or Brady. Similarly, the defendant's request of the court to compel the government to obtain information from DOE about how it handled security clearances for prior presidents is meritless, as the only possible justification for seeking that information would be to support a pretrial motion to dismiss for selective prosecution. Well, we know you don't want that to happen, Jack. Finally, the DOE is not part of the prosecution team. Obviously, they're not. All right, the court should deny defendants' requests for evidence related to secure facilities. The defendant's next request... How much time do I have? Okay. The defendant's next request that the court compel the government to produce evidence related to the use of secure facilities at President Trump's residences. Specifically, the defendant contend that they are entitled to discovery without about the installation by the Secret Service and the White House Communications Agency of a temporary of temporary secure locations at several of Trump's residencies during his presidency and to evidence regarding steps that the Secret, Secret Service took to, to secure the residences. The defendants claim that the Secret Service is part of the prosecution team apparently underlies these requests. The court should deny defendants' request for two reasons. First, as defendants' citation of discovery already provided to them, the government has already produced thorough information about the use of secure facilities at Trump's residential locations and steps the Secret Service took to protect Trump and his family. In response to grand jury subpoenas, the Secret Service provided materials to the government which have been produced in discovery, including information for the planned and performed work to enhance security at Mar-a-Lago, information related to Secret Service vehicles, records of reports and security breaches, names of Secret Service personnel, Mar-a-Lago guest access procedures, command post entry logs, books, schematics, etc. The fact that of the approximately 48,000 guests who visited Mar-a-Lago between January 21st, or whoa, 48,000 guests between January 2021 and May 2022, while classified documents were at the property, only 2,200 had their names checked and only 2,900 passed through mag magnetometers, and testimony from multiple Secret Service agents stating that they were unaware that classified documents were being stored at Mar-a-Lago and would not be responsible for safeguarding such documents in any event. The government also obtained, via subpoena, email accounts of three Secret Service agents, disclosed the emails it reviewed, and asked the defense to let the government know whether they believed they were entitled to additional materials, which they did not do. In addition, the government produced all information it obtained concerning permanent or semi-permanent secured facilities that can be used to accommodate access to classified information at properties associated with Trump during his presidency including an FBI 302 from an interview with an individual who served as an officer in the WHCA. In short, the government has produced all the defendants, produced two defendants, all the information it obtained during the investigation relating to temporary secure facilities for review of classification information at any of Trump's properties or the steps that the Secret Service took relating to security of those properties. To the extent that defendants seek to compel the government to obtain and produce additional discovery or information beyond that, 
has been provided their request are nonspecific fishing expeditions. Even in addition, even were the defendant's request, even if the defendant's request appropriately specific, were appropriately specific. <laughs> I can't talk anymore, guys. <laughs> oh my gosh. In addition, even were the defendant's request appropriately specific and justified, and they are not, neither the Secret Service nor the WHCA are part of the prosecution team. Prosecutors have no authority over Secret Service or the WHCA, et cetera, et cetera. The Secret Service agents cooperated with the FBI in setting up a meeting and providing access to and escorting uh, the agents during the August 2022 search. Okay. The court should deny defendants' request for production of materials concerning search. The defendants argue that the government should be compelled to search for and produce all correspondence about the search of Mar-a-Lago on August 8th. They appear to be focused on the FBI not having searched a portion of Trump's residence, but the request also uses some of the same broad, unjustified phrasing that they use in other requests. The government has already provided considerable materials relating to the August 8th, 2022 execution of the search warrant, including the FBI operations plan for the search, the roster of personnel who participated in the search, chain of custody reports, information relating to the transport of evidence, detailed information relating to the location of where items were found, CCTV footage from the day of the search, communications obtained from the Trump Organization, and Mar-a-Lago employees on the day of the search, photographs taken, electronic communications, FBI management and plan logistics, witness interviews, grand jury transcripts, etc., 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 to the extent that there are any additional agent communications producible under the Jinx Act that have not already been produced, the government will produce them before the trial. So, Jack's team keeps on saying we've already given them everything. Like they keep on trying to make it appear in their filing, especially at the very beginning of the filing, that we've already turned over all this stuff and they're just fishing. And they're trying to expand the scope of this because of a selective prosecution thing. But then you get a note like this where it says, if there's anything we haven't turned over, we'll do it before trial. So they're acquiescing here. To the extent that the defendants seek additional non-substantive correspondence about the search from non-witnesses, that material is not discoverable and their request should be denied. Oh my gosh, he didn't even address... Okay, that's it. I thought for sure Jack Smith was about to address the report that they didn't search the locked closet and they didn't search the quote-unquote hidden room. But he just skips over that. Probably because it's true and it would undermine his case. All right, the court should deny defendant's request for production of CCTV footage. Uh, right here they say they already gave it to them. The government has met and exceeded its discovery obligation for production of CCTV footage. The government made two productions of that footage. The government provided uh, third-party CCTV footage via electronic links and offered as a courtesy to deliver to the defense hard drives containing replicas of that footage. The government also provided an index of the footage and specific clips. 
and correspondence accompanying each discovery production the government offered to help defense counsel if they had any questions about it. Counsel for Trump has never reported to the government being unable to view the footage as produced. An email on October 24th, months after, after the materials were made available to the counsel, um, counsel for De Oliveira for the first time mentioned problems with that footage. The FBI helped resolve the reported issues. Since then, De Oliveira's counsel has raised technical issues with reviewing specific Trump Organization CCTV files. The government has promptly assisted with reviewing the inquiries. Counsel for NADA have copied um, the October 24th email and reported having the same issues. The government extended the same laptop offer to NADA's counsel who accepted that offer but noted that he planned to return it promptly, assuming I have the same issues. Okay. The government heard nothing from NADA's counsel about CCTV footage for more than two months and thus reasonably believed that defense counsel had watched and was continuing to review the footage. On January 11th, NADA's counsel confirmed that he was able to extract all of the files, but had encountered difficulty attempting to launch the video application. Counsel referenced that application as a proprietary media player. In response, the government worked with counsel to identify his misstep in attempting to launch the player. What this all gets to is just that the way Jack Smith's team what turned over the CTT footage and the information they provided along with it was not considerate. And it resulted in delays and difficulties and frustrations with them looking at the CCTV footage. Which is particularly important to Nada and De Oliveira's case. Um, but Jack Smith's team is saying, look, when we found out about these problems, we helped them. Defendant's request for unredacted discovery of materials should be denied. In a footnote at the end of the defendant's motion is a broad request to compel the government to produce unredacted copies of discovery previously produced to defendants in redacted form. Redactions to the discovery in this case were made for information such as the FBI's case file number, email addresses of FBI employees, classification markings that no longer apply to now unclassified documents, and other similarly non-discoverable information. None of those redactions contain Brady, Giglio, or Rule 16 material. Defendants Nada and De Oliveira's request for non-disclosure of non-class or for disclosure of non-classified discovery should be denied because it's moot, because the government has already produced such material. Okay. An unclassified discovery the government has produced or will soon or will soon produce. Okay. So like Jack Smith makes it seem like they already complied, but then you have this qualifier. We either produced or will soon produce unclassified portions of the classified transcripts. Finally, the government has already produced in unclassified discovery documents previously produced in classified discovery that are unclassified or that the relevant equity holders have determined no longer need to be protected and declassified. That material includes four of the five documents that Nada and Delavera list in their tables. Right there. The government informed Defense Counsel in a December 6th discovery letter that it was producing an unclassified discovery material previously produced and classified. Okay, conclusion. 
For all these reasons, the court should deny the motions to compel in their entirety. We made it. We made it through that filing. Congratulations, everybody. Okay. Thank y'all for being here today, and thank you for going through that filing with me. Um, God is with us over on Foxhole. Thank you for the can. They say, is this trial still pending? Supreme Court response on president privilege. No, that's the D.C. case. Um, this is the Docs case, and the Docs, the Docs case in Florida is not under appeal. The Docs case in Florida is proceeding as planned, basically. It's not, there hasn't been an appeal in it or anything. The DC case is the one that um, <clears throat> back in the beginning of January was heard before the DC Court of Appeals, and that's on presidential immunity, you mean, not privilege. Um, and they still haven't decided. They haven't issued an opinion on it. So that's the case that's off the calendar, up in the air, and whatever the D.C. Court of Appeals says, it's going to go to SCOTUS after that. Either if Jack Smith loses, he's appealing to SCOTUS. If Trump loses, he's appealing to SCOTUS. So that's the D.C. case. This is the Docs case. And this one is proceeding along. And... um. We're waiting for, if I remember right, we're waiting for Judge Cannon to rule on motions to dismiss, and we're waiting on Judge Cannon to rule on these motions to compel discovery, if I if I remember right. Or maybe Trump, has Trump filed a motion to dismiss in this case? I think he has. There's so many cases. Um, so yeah, that's what's going on in this case. Filter Dog, thank you for the cookie. Say, you must be well rested. I need to eat. Well... I am well rested. Thank you very much. Feels great. And I need to eat too. It's lunchtime. So, and I also need to pick up my toddler. So guys, thank you very much for being here. Hit the thumbs up. If you're watching on Rumble, hit the thumbs up and help me make the leaderboard. I really appreciate that. Um, I've been, I've been making the top 20, top 30 here and there. It'd be great to make the top 20 again. And uh, watch for clips of the show. I'll make some clips of today's show, and I will post them on my Rumble page. And I'll also do a thread about this. When I get time, again, to sit down at my, my desk here and, uh, and do some re research, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this filing and I'm going to uh, make a thread out of it and add a little bit more than what I was able to do in this show. I'm going to grab it, grab the exhibits and attach them to it, and grab some news reporting and attach it to it. So if you're interested in the thread, then watch for that on my on my X account. So RL Skeeter, thank you very much for the rant. I appreciate that. I hope I didn't miss anybody else's rant um, today. I think I grabbed everybody's rants over on Rumble. But I know I was, I think I got everybody. I was storming through this thing, so... I had just enough time to get it in. Thank you guys for being document nerds with me. I appreciate it. So y'all have a blessed day. And remember, we're not going to win every battle. But we are going to win this war. Stay positive. I'll see you later.
Oh, wait. There we go. All right. I thought the music was broken. 